your presence at their wedding, where it will truly be a match made in heaven. And then nuptials turn to napalm in a match made in hell. Sergeant Slaughter, Colonel Mustafa, General Amnon, the Triangle of Terror, square off against the red-hot combination of the Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan. It's time for red-hot action. It's time for SummerSlam. I forgot to say that after this, Piper says that the bushwhackers are going to eat and lick their way through <laughs> the opposition. And I'm like, that's not something I want to watch. Well, especially as he says afterwards that after that, that the natural disasters are living proof that Chernobyl happened. But you won't want to lick them, would you? Radioactive. Mm. Can you imagine having to lick John Tenter in Fred Tolbert's crevices? <laughs> Hang on, I've just realised it's Fred Ottman. Fred Tolbert was on How To, wasn't he? He was, yeah. yeah. Well, I wouldn't mind looking his crevice, but not Fred Ottman. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I've said this numerous times, but I met Fred Ottman. He's a lovely man. Hang on, which one's Fred Ottman, the the, the wrestler? Is yeah, 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 it's Typhoon. I haven't met Fred Tolbert. I mean, if I had, I I won't be doing this shit. I'll be doing a Fred Tolbert podcast. You'd be helping out Operation U Tree, I think. Here we are, yeah. <laughs> Yes, indeed, it is the Random Wrestling Review and part two of our three-part SummerSlam season bonanza. Today, we make our way back all the way to SummerSlam 1991 and a dose of heaven and a dose of hell. Joining me today is old man Sam Carey. Who's muted. (laughs) It's very strange, isn't it? I'm not quite sure how that's happened. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Yes, a good one there. Really, really smooth. What a great start. Yeah. Luckily, I do oodles of editing after this to clean everything up. And I'll be, I'll be honest, old man, it's nearly always you I have to clean up. <laughs> yeah, well, to be honest, you've got to. No, can't think of anything. See, Go I on. told you. My brain's got. That's, that's thrown me completely because I don't know why I was muted. And also today, we have a first time guest of the pod, but someone who may be familiar to some of our listeners is Gavin Duenas. Welcome to the show, Gavin. Hello. Thank you. You're much smoother, I'm glad to report much much smoother i probably won't have to edit you at all i'd imagine <laughs> certainly in terms of a comparison to old man anyway so in a moment i'm going to do some introductions because i'm aware old man and gavin you haven't spoken to each other before at all before i do that i'm just going to give a little plug in the direction of our social media channels you can find us on twitter and facebook at rwr pod uk and our followers there recently voted gorilla monsoon and bobby heenan the greatest wwe commentary duo of all time in an eight duo tournament would you like me to tell you who the other participants of this tournament were? Yes. Yes, because I'm not on the internet, so I don't know. Apart from when you record with us, that's yeah. it. So and and obviously, obviously pornography as well. <laughs> so the people in the tournament were uh, Vince McMahon and Bobby Heenan, Michael Cole and Pat McAfee, Vince McMahon and The King, Gorilla and Jesse. Gorilla and Bobby, obviously, won the tournament. Michael Cole and The King, Jim Ross and The King and Michael Cole and JBL. Those were the eight participants. Now, since we did the tournament, we did have a couple of uh, complaints that some people's favourite weren't included. Can you guess who that might be? I think Vince and Jesse. No, no. The complaints were that we didn't include uh, Jim Ross and Paul Heyman 
And I think I think it's fair enough because they were very, very good. But I, I reasoned that this was a tournament to find the very best. And these were the tenured combinations, I thought, of the WWE history. So those were the eight we put in the tournament. Also, did JR and Heyman only have about three months? Mm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was really about those ones that had been kind of the key tenured WWE's mm. flagship commentary teams over the course of history. And that history is quite long now and has got quite a lot of different um, people in. Their first round match. I will say Michael Cole was eliminated in, in all three of his duos were eliminated Aww. in the first round. How come Josh Matthews didn't make it in? <laughs> I did I did did one certain moment to put Josh Matthews and uh, Matt Stryker as a duo together, but uh I decided that one that one wouldn't gonna make the cut. <laughs> So today I wanted to kick things off with some introductions, as I said at the start of the show. For your benefit, Gavin, there are some things you need to know about Old Man before we get underway, before things start snowballing very, very quickly. So first of all, he's going to randomly alter the names of certain wrestlers out of Mm -hmm. nowhere sometimes. Some of them have made regular occurrences. So for example, Byron Saxton is often known as Sexy Saxton. Mike Rotunda might well get referred to as Iron Mike. And almost certainly, Glenn Jacobs might be simply called Cunt. In fairness, that's one we all get involved in from time (laughs) to time. Other things to know about Old Man is that during our first episode, I once said the words friends of the show. Old Man, since that point, has very much taken that to heart. And pretty much every single episode, he does utter those words in reference to pretty much anybody that he wants. I think we've had friend of the show Val Venus before. Yeah. Don't put too much stock in it. They aren't going to be friends of the show more often than not. They'll just be some random person. All right, hang on. Breaking down fourth walls all over the shop here. Well, you know, we've got to be be done today, I think. And also, you should know um, old man is a stickler for the rules especially if a match is no disqualification so you're finding mm-hmm. it's very very angry if the referees start trying to apply rules in no disqualification matches i.e rope breaks anything like that he just gets really pissed off with it well that's interesting because i actually I, mean, I don't want to get too far ahead but on this very show there was a there was an example where i felt i got a bit frustrated that somebody was sticking to the rules in an odq match so i think we might be kindred spirits yes i think we're gonna to hear. that's good to hear yeah, I think we're going to have a big orgasmic kind of climax. When Unless he likes AEW. Oh. Uh, no, not particularly. He doesn't. It's all there. Uh, yeah. It's all, it's all, it's, ah, oh, I think, we've, I don't know what I'm trying to say. There's my edit needing to be done right there. Yes, um, it is pathetic. <laughs> so, um, Gavin, in terms of getting to know you, what we do with all of our new guests who come on the show is we ask them just a little bit to outline their kind of history of pro wrestling what they've how when they got into it what they most enjoyed in terms of periods of time and where their blind spots are most importantly so what they don't know about or where they perhaps have less of a kind of memory of the things that went on uh, i got into wrestling in i think the spring of 1991 and um basically a couple of brothers who lived up the road started lending me their their tapes that they recorded from sky so SummerSlam 91 was my my first experience of watching a wrestling pay-per-view where i sort of or a wwf pay-per-view where i knew who the wrestlers were and i did have a slight break from wrestling from about 94 to 97 and then got into it really really fiercely from 97 onwards and and kind of came somewhat obsessed i, I think the 97 98 wwf raw period was probably my favorite i think that and i think a lot of it still holds up as far as blind spots i don't know as much as i feel like i should about british wrestling so or historical or present um i i'd like to know more about the sort of the, the territories as well and I, I just i kind of haven't got around to to watching enough of that it's probably worth noting i i, I haven't watched a wwe pay-per-view now for about four years i'm very much just sort of lapsed fan i do kind of follow what goes on in 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 wwe and AEW, and i watch the occasional youtube clip but i, I i'm not a kind of currently a ardent 
follower of wrestling. You are what's the true definition of a casual fan, really, then, Gavin? Yeah, maybe I am. Yeah, maybe I need to be hooked. I think it's just one of those kind of strange labels that people have come up with that the casual fans are people who haven't necessarily watched a lot of wrestling. It's not really true. It's just they don't necessarily aren't necessarily hooked, like you said. So yeah, I, if if I'm a casual fan, then you know, like I, I'd say I when I before I was a casual fan, I was obsessed might not be the right word, but I, I was I was really really interested in wrestling, and and I wouldn't say I was particularly a, a loyalist to any product or company or wrestler, but uh, you know, I just I, I I was fascinated by the industry, and I you know kind of read up a lot about the industry and tried my best to send things to to various people in the industry to tell them to do things better, and they all ignored me. <laughs> now I'm a casual say, fan as a result. I'm I'm spurned. That's it, isn't it? If they'd listen to you, mm. the product could be completely different. Wouldn't be shit anymore. so uh, we put up a twitter poll today as well um as we're recording this i should say this won't come out for a couple of weeks afterwards which was the obviously about vincent man leaving wwe now i know old man you guys spoke about this on the podcast Mm. last week but uh, i didn't want to talk about what you guys talked about but just i wanted to ask the question that we asked on our twitter poll which is does the retirement of vincent man make you more or less likely or neither to watch WWE more often going forward. At this point, I feel like something would have to drastically change for me to watch it again. And I think it's probably unlikely that I will ever become a kind of avid viewer again. But I do think on the balance of things that having Triple H in charge of creative will will make it better. I think there's a, a, it's not a guarantee, but I think that he's kind of, he's not got the the same sort of weird quirks as Vince McMahon and probably has slightly more uh, respect for the, for the art form and also I think he sort of wants to be liked more than Vince McMahon ever did and I, and I think he wants to please the audience in a way that Vince McMahon never did so so I think the chances are it will be better but that doesn't necessarily make you more likely to watch it no but only because I don't really want to <laughs> a big old cynic <laughs> if it becomes amazing then yeah all right it's more likely that it will become amazing under Triple H than it was going to be so so I guess it's more likely I'll watch you got your answer yeah I'll have to do Gavin I'll have to do oh man <laughs> I watch most of the pay-per-views did have a little break where I didn't for about nine months or so but I watched SummerSlam over the Sunday and the Monday wasn't that long was it <laughs> no it was uh, the amount of fucking videos Jesus they, it's three hours and 40 minutes could have been half hour <laughs> A fucking videos they had in it, Jesus. But uh, I th- thought it was fine. Thought it was absolutely fine. Some of it was very good. Some of it was mystifying. But I kind of expect that from a wrestling show, to be honest. But I did read the report of Raw. Now, don't get me wrong, I am never going to watch Raw. I'd rather rather use one of those like garlic mincers, the little hammers on my bollocks, than watch <laughs> three hours and fifteen minutes of Raw every week. But it sounded excellent. And if I was fifteen years younger and had more time, I think I probably would. But as a 38-year-old cynic, absolutely not. Hang on, 15 years younger? What, when you were 70, you mean? <laughs> that's right, that's right, Ben. How funny he is. Always joking <laughs> about my age. And also, I, I, I've also wanted to pull out the fact that you've managed to, I think over the last two months, find as many ways possible of destroying your bollocks in some way as you mm-hmm. possibly could imagine. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to do what you enjoy, mate. <laughs> <laughs> To fully answer your question, no, but I am intrigued by where it's going to go. But it would take, like Gavin said, an enormous amount for me to watch regularly because time, isn't it? Time. 
Time is the big mm. one, yeah. Time, especially as we're doing this podcast and we watch a three-hour show every week just for mm. this podcast. It's hard enough yeah. to just do that, to be perfectly honest. I did toy with the idea of watching Raw every week, but on a four-week week delay, so I could watch it on the network rather than watching it anywhere else. Because I, I've got BT and I could record it. I just can't bother. So I thought, you know what? The network, they come on, I think it's on a four-week delay or a month delay or something. So I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll watch them four weeks behind but then i thought nah i'm not gonna do that it's just rubbish and i can't as you said old man i've not got the time well and also you have a crippling pornography addiction don't you <laughs> which i can't get to because i've got to spend so much time editing what you say <laughs> yes you know what in that case i'm doing my bit you are otherwise yeah. otherwise you'll go blind anyway expectations for summer slam 1991 what were our expectations now gavin you said you saw this, this is your first pay-per-view that you saw what was interesting you what you said was this is the first wwe pay-per-view i watched when i knew who the people were so does that mean you've watched previous to that pay-per-views where you didn't know who the people were well i'd got into it after the previous pay-per-view which must have been wrestlemania 7 mm-hmm. um but i i vaguely remember with one of the brothers who used to record it for me watching the i can't remember what it was called the end of survivor series 1990 they had like a match of survival or something where the, the survivors all had a match that would be an obvious name for it actually wouldn't it so i i'd sort of i remembered what watching that but I, I didn't watch it knowing anything about anyone and wasn't really that interested in what was going on and and at some point between that and well I, it must have been after wrestlemania 7 because yeah i didn't wrestlemania 7 happened and and completely passed me by and then by the time of SummerSlam, i was i was into it and i i'd been uh, i don't know if you remember these cards that you could buy there was i can't remember what the set was called but like, i had all these collection cards and so i kind of had a had a, an idea of who everyone was how much they weighed where they came from and what their favorite quote was <laughs> so i was you know i was pretty well equipped for this pay-per-view yeah. I, I knew what when people said various quotes i, I knew how to identify who was who <laughs> the vital statistics basically mm. is what you're saying I, oh man i believe that's why you're a massive fan of rick martell is it not because you uh, collected it these is cards? indeed yeah, because, because of of that, when you said wrestling cards gavin i was like bloody heck what a man what a guy this is because that is that's one of my earliest memories is a neighbor of my nan's he's he's got to be three or four years older than me i think and he had the wrestling cards and that's where yeah that's where my deep love of rick martel came in didn't he have the yes i am a model bad on yeah i think so yeah yeah because there were a couple of different ones oh yeah yeah my favorite's the one where on the back he's wearing the pink trunks and he's got someone in the boston crab and i was like that's a fucking man that is yeah <laughs> what a man yeah definition of a man so yeah so Gavin what were your expectations watching SummerSlam 1991 now what were you expecting before you watched it again what were your expectations I hadn't watched it for about 20 years I, I'm not doing my maths wrong it's just I watched it on video about 10 years after it happened <laughs> and uh, I, I wasn't expecting great wrestling and I was kind of intrigued to see whether, you know, the one particular match that this that this show is remembered for was as good as it's remembered as being. And I sort of had a vague recollection of the Mountie being amazing at this event. And I wanted to know if I was correct in feeling that way. Oh, man, what about you? I have not watched this in one go since I watched it as a kid. And I could, I have very vivid memories of watching this with my sisters and my mum and watching The Wedding, which in my little tiny brain at that point felt like it went on forever, this <laughs> wedding. I was like, oh, get on with it. Bloody get on with it. I want to see some people. So I was quite up for this to be honest, because there's a little hit of nostalgia and I thought I was going to find much to enjoy. So my expectations were that this was going to be not very good 
that was my expectation. I didn't expect it to be very good. I was thinking about, okay, the main event is not something that I'm particularly excited by. I know, obviously, there's Bret Hart versus Mr. Perfect. So I'm like, well, that could be, that is, I know, supposed to be a very good match. And I'm sure that I've watched it num- numerous times and thought that it was good. But um, coming at it with new eyes, especially after having earlier this year covered King of the Ring 93 and, and deciding at that point that the match they have there is better than this. I was like, right now, is that true? Because I'm going to get to see this one now. Uh, and then everything else was like, I can't remember what else happens, to be perfectly honest except for what you said Gavin and who I will name right this minute as early as this as this we've ever done before my MVP of the show the Mountie is an absolute fucking legend on this show <laughs> and is my MVP so I don't want to get that in straight away because he is absolutely brilliant but those are really my recollections couldn't really remember a lot else so wasn't expecting a huge amount from this one okay talking points Gavin were you aware that this is what we were expecting you to do uh, no I wasn't but I'm, I'm now glad that I filled a page and a half of A3 with notes as I watched it so <laughs> So uh, mm. maybe if you, you know, like, you know, talk about your talking points, I could just check my note. Oh, I, I like the look of that piece of paper you just pulled out. It looked like it was color coded and everything. No, on one side, it's actually my uh, my summer holiday uh, calendar oh. that I made for myself. Oh. And then I've written all over it with my SummerSlam 91 notes. <laughs> Shame. I thought there was going to be like these really like these. The, the red ones are really important things I have to get in. The amber <laughs> ones, if there's time, I'll chuck that in. The rest, well, we'll see. We'll see. The rest right. is like Hercules looks old. <laughs> hey, that's core content for this podcast, all right? <laughs> Old man, what was your talking point? See, I always forget that there's a talking point. So whenever Tinky <laughs> comes to me, I'm always like, oh, I forgot about that. I'm going to talk about Virgil and Ted WRC, I think. Go for it. We've talked about Virgil and his meat sauce on here before. <laughs> it is the oddest thing that he is so popular. I don't understand it. He's terrible. Like He's absolutely terrible. Ted DiBiase is so far past his best. He wrestles like I would, I think, at this point. He's still great. But compared to where he was, like back in the 80s, oh, lovely. But yeah, so they're fighting as well. So my main bugbear with this is that they're fighting for the Million Dollar Championship, which is nothing. It's just garbage, really. It's not portrayed as being important at all. And Virgil wins this match. And he's celebrating like he's won, what is it? Won the Powerball. That's the American's corner, which is apparently the lottery. But yeah, it's crap. I don't like <laughs> it. It's because he's, he's ended racism. Isn't that basically the storyline <laughs> of that match? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure whether he ended it, to be honest. I mean, the whole storyline is just all very uncomfortable, isn't it? I especially watched through these 2022 eyes. Well, to be honest, even probably 1995 eyes, it would have been a bit like, oh, that's a bit dicey isn't it but yeah i found it i find it all very confusing and i think you probably hit on i was kind of going to dance around it but you've just basically smashed this bollocks in gavin and you're 100 percent correct this is why i don't like it it's because i think it just makes me incredibly uncomfortable and i also think that it's just it's quite shameful really well, well what i'll do before i come to you gavin with your thoughts i'm going to quickly run through what happens so it is a 13 minute match it's ted dibiossi defending the million dollar championship against virgil and the match ends when dibiossi goes to ram virgil's head into an exposed turnbuckle but virgil reverses it both men go down but then virgil crawls over after a very long time and gets the pin mm. gavin what did you make of it i, I thought it was a all right match it was very uh, like typical of this show it was quite basic but i thought ted dibiossi did a very good job of of selling and i I think the yeah the storyline is really uncomfortable and one thing that makes it even more uncomfortable is is that i think virgil is the only black person on the whole show and it just feels so like it just feels so lazy that that's kind of the that's the the direction they decide to go with the one black person but he's really over Mm. 
and that's kind of something that stands out from the whole show really that the crowd is is so into it and yeah i i thought this i thought the booking of this was actually pretty good it was a good story that they told but it was yeah like like, like most things on the show it probably if it had gone much longer i would i would have got bored in the match i really like this i thought this was really good not the story obviously the story is in bad taste but the match is fun it's really fun the, the two wrestlers are really over roddy piper really adds something on commentary yes. in this one it's very similar to the way bobby heenan is during that king of the ring 93 match where bret hart and perfect are facing each other even though at that point heenan was no longer mr perfect's manager and mr perfect was a baby face heenan still gets kind of really into it and here piper really gets into it he's played quite a vital role in this whole storyline he's kind of been encouraging again i mean this is really ham-fisted and lazy and kind of you know cringy but he's kind of like almost like he's helped the young lad virgil come along and step out of dibiossi's shadow and he's tried to like encourage him to stand up for himself and all this stuff so him being there really helps and yeah the crowd is just massively into it i thought dibiossi did a really good job of as you said gavin kind of carrying uh, virgil through this match because virgil is rubbish and he always was to the point where when he was in wcw he barely ever wrestled probably because they just didn't trust him to have a match like he just wasn't really of any kind of skill level but this was really enjoyable and it was quite there was a one or two things like this on this show where i just thought don't get me wrong i'm not going to win any kind of match of the year awards or anything but in terms of something that keeps you going keeps the crowd going gets everyone intro- interested everyone's invested in it is is hitting the mark in terms of the reaction it's getting can't really argue with it i thought it was really really quite decent just to it's back seen- up your point about dibiossi Actually, at one point in the match, I thought, shit, Virgil was way better than I remembered him being. Uh, and that's entirely down to DiBiossi. Like, he, mm. he made Virgil look much better than he was. When I say it was basic, I don't mean that was bad, necessarily. Mm. But yeah, it was short and sweet, and it and it was well-booked, and, and DiBiossi did enough to make it... And, and I, Virgil played his part, I thought, but it was mostly DiBiossi who made it a, a watchable match. There's a few atomic drops in here, so I'm always <laughs> good to that. There's one by Virgil, where DiBiossi sells over the top rope which I thought was wonderful. I think maybe I am being a bit harsh on this. I just think, I thought it's 13 minutes. It's a long old time to watch Virgil. <laughs> it's a long old time to watch Virgil. But to your point, Tinky, Piper is balls deep in this. And he is selling his little heart out. And I I actually thought Piper all the way through. I'm not a Piper guy. And that's just the Pied Piper. I like him. But he's pretty good on this, Piper. I was very surprised. I largely enjoyed his commentary, whereas I find him intensely annoying normally. But I thought, you know what, Pipes? You did all right, lad. You're all right by me. I think his performance in this match would be labelled by some people as not particularly good because of the investment he makes in it. And I think that's mm. precisely why it is good. I think it yeah. sells the emotion of the of the moment mm. really, really well. I think some people would be like, oh my God, shut up. You're just going to my head in. Why can't you just commentate on the match? But I think it just really adds adds something to this. I think this is the most bearable Piper ever. This is the, the most bearable Piper ever is on commentary on any show. I can't bear Piper as a, as a commentator in his in his WWF run. But I think that, I, I think Heenan is a big part of it because he kind of seems to keep him on track. And just having, mm. having three people commentating rather than two means there's just a bit less piper to listen to but he he is definitely more bearable on this show because when i when i saw him at the start when they showed the commentators i, I thought oh shit he's gonna mm. ruin this show but yeah he, he really doesn't he's you know he's he's fine and, and a couple of times he actually sort of said a couple of good lines i think what also piper does really well and it's entirely in line with his character as it's always been so he treads that line between babyface and heel quite well so you've obviously got the very very specifically 
babyface commentator, Gorilla Monsoon. And then you've got the very specifically heel commentator, Bobby Heenan. And Piper just straddles the line as he did his, ento- his entire career, really. Even when he was a big babyface, he would very often be the guy who would stretch the rules. He'd very often be the guy who wouldn't necessarily just stay on the babyface side. He was kind of, kind of that kind of guy that, that had that in him as, as, a, as a sort of option. And I think it works really well, just bridging the gap between the two. So it wasn't just conflict to the com- two commentators. There was this conduit between them, which Piper played, which was a little bit different. And not many people do it well. We've got we've had loads of three person commentary teams over over the years, and that you don't often get that kind of conduit between the babyface and heel. So I'll go. I'll pick out my talking point from the show next, which um, is going to be the overall the the end of an era about this show. So I think this is a real moment where the previous period of WWF ends and a new one is ushered in after this show. So this is the last pay-per-view that Andre the Giant appears on in the WWF history. It's the last one that relies on the three big stars of the last three, four years, Savage, Hogan, Warrior. They're the three main stars of the show. And this is the last one where all three of them appear and are the main attractions for it in terms of a pay-per-view. It's also got the end of people like Greg Valentine, you know, those kinds of guys. I tend to think of 93 being the new generation, the beginning of the new generation. And 92 is kind of like a a changing of the guard. It's kind of transitional year almost between the two. It's Ric Flair's year. It's the year where Hogan goes away. Warrior goes away. British Bulldog goes away. You know, lots of different kind of people. And they start to bring people like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels much more to the fore. But 91 is the final year, really, of the old the old period before that, the, the peak period before that. 92 is also the year where the uh, audiences were down enough that Saturday Night's main event was moved from NBC to Fox in, in the US because NBC weren't getting the figures they needed for, the, for it to remain on their air. So this felt like the end of an era because even Survivor Series is The Undertaker's first world title. Uh, win so this just feels like the end of this period where we've had the glory days after this there's less gorilla monsoon in general all the guys on there is less of ted dibiossi starting to wind down becomes into a tag team in, in 92 another thing obviously perfect losing the intercontinental title is another thing here where bret hart's being elevated but in the meantime perfect's not going to wrestle for the next year or so and so it made me think wow this really feels like the moment where this period ended and be honest on the evidence of this not necessarily in terms of commerciality I don't know exactly how well this did. But in terms of quality, certainly when you get to the main event, you can understand why. Because they're relying on Sergeant Slaughter, General Adnan and Colonel Mustafa to be their heel protagonists, to be the ones that pull in the heat against Hogan and Warrior. So I guess we should talk about the main event because I've sort of brought that into this conversation. So the main event uh, is Hulk Hogan and the Ottawa Warrior against Sergeant Slaughter, General Adnan and Colonel Mustafa with Sid Justice as a special guest referee. It's 12 minutes, 40 seconds in length. And it ends when Sergeant Slaughter tries to use some trademark mysterious wrestling powder, but Hogan knocks it into Slaughter's face and then Hogan gets the pin and gets the victory. So, yeah, in terms of this match, it felt like Sergeant Slaughter, right? He looks like Gordon Kay from a lower low. I mean, that's the quality <laughs> yeah. we're talking about here. And then behind him, he's got Colonel Mustafa, Iron Sheik, who already is showing signs of not being able to walk or punch or kick very well. And General Adnan or um, uh, Sheik Adnan Al Casey, who we saw on, I think, an AWA show we've, re- we've covered mm. in the past, who must be like 50 odd even here. And you're just like, how have they? And then you've got Hogan and Warrior, these two like basically adonis stupid steroid bodied guys and it's just like how do they how do they 
expect to sell this this match as a ma- major attraction it just blows my mind not only that obviously the storyline again talking about bad taste is still a leftover from the gulf war which had ended in february six seven months before this i mean if there was an equivalent for doing a storyline about world war ii it would have ended in 1965 i mean it's ridiculous it's uh in terms of the length of the gulf war so i just don't understand it and so it kind of makes a lot of sense here that they need to move in a new direction of course they've just signed rick flair as well um, who's just left wcw and he doesn't appear on the show although we do get some uh, mention of him during the during this one thoughts on the main event let's start with you gavin i think it's a really bizarre main event for many of the reasons you said not least because the gulf war had ended ages before this the gulf war ended before wrestlemania 7 yeah and yet the next pay-per-view they're still basing their main event match around it just an odd combination of, of people and all, I, I was kind of trying to what i was trying to work out was was this a backup plan was there something else they had kind of had in mind but I, you know i think it, you sort of if you put yourself in that wwf mentality of 1991 they didn't they, they weren't necessarily sort of trying to put out their most marketable matches all the time on pay-per-view and i, I think you know it almost a pay-per-view often was had that sort of house show uh send people home happy kind of feeling to it and you know, and also i suppose the rarity of you know they didn't have raw and smackdown they didn't have you know th- this would have been a, a raw main event now uh, um but back then it was a a pay-per-view main event it was supposed to sell a pay-per-view it was still enough of a novelty just to see hulk hogan and to see the ultimate warrior see them teaming up and and you know there were enough kind of potential factors that could have played into the match none of which did like jake the snake and the undertaker and Ric Flair and Sid Justice the I, I guess there maybe at the time there was some intrigue but it, yeah it's just a it, it seems we're looking at it with a 2022 mindset it seems impossible to imagine they would have ever thought this is the match that's going to sell a pay-per-view and, and it's a, a pretty shit match you know it's, it's <laughs> on a show that has lots of very rudimentary matches uh, this one is kind of on the on the weaker end of those rudimentary matches and the finish kind of comes out of nowhere the most interesting thing about the main event is is the whole backstage story with with the warrior at the time and also I feel like I have to point out that Sid Justice poking his head through the curtain at the end <laughs> It's like it's it's so weird. <laughs> it's, it's it's just really odd. Just Sid Justice being a kind of crowd pleasing babyface is odd anyway. But the, the way he pokes his head out of the window, the the curtain is is one of the more bizarre sights I've ever seen on a WWF show. Did you think this is where they started in their mind planted the idea of the psycho? Like here he is, he's like <laughs> yeah. poking his and he's sort of like like looking around as if he doesn't know what's going on. He's poking his head through the curtain and Hogan's trying to tempt him back into the ring to come and celebrate with him. And then he has to show him how to do the poses and how to cup his ear (laughs) yeah well it's interesting what you say there as well about the kind of house show feel because actually i think in some respects it's the opposite it's almost like actually the house shows is where you would see your pay-per-view caliber matches because Mm. obviously they were still so reliant on the attendance figures of their you know their cycle their their kind of trip around the the loop if you like and that loop had become much much bigger in the previous five six years because of their national expansion and uh, interestingly during this time as you said jake roberts and the undertaker are kind of together almost and and they'd sort of turned Jake Roberts had turned on the Ultimate Warrior not long before this and The Undertaker and Ultimate Warrior had been having matches on the house show loop prior to SummerSlam now that feels like a pay-per-view match <laughs> but of course it wasn't they they actually wanted to play out on house show and, and first and then possibly if Warrior had stuck around you might have seen them fight again at Survivor Series after they'd got all the money out of it from doing it on the loop on the house show circuit so it's kind of the opposite it's kind of weird the, 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 the house show stuff is actually where the pay-per-view these days the pay-per-view caliber stuff would come and, and the pay-per-view stuff would be on the on the house show so this is 
kind of strange but yeah really really interesting yeah i don't know about sid's poking his head through the the curtain i don't know where that came from it's the oddest thing i think i've seen in wrestling for years since 1991 or, or before that <laughs> well i don't know to be honest it's just so why is he poking his head through the curtain anyway because he's obviously doing that because he doesn't call back to him so he's just there stood there with his head just this enormous man they've got his head through like a dog like looking <laughs> through a window and she's like oh what's going on in there it's just all very strange isn't it but it is the highlight of this dreadful match because it's ghastly. So General Adnan is over 50 at this point. Sajasaw is 44, and I think Colonel Mustafa is 48. So that's some old fuckers in that ring. Sajasaw is the only one who can go a lick, and he can't, really. He doesn't take the uh, the Irish whip into the turnbuckle like he did in WrestleMania 7, Oof. where he always knocks over the ring. But this is classic Hogan fair, where he's doing all the selling early on. The crowd absolutely love him. Like, they're still gagging for Hogan in 91 they're still loving him but the hot tag it was quite interesting because when the hot tag happens i was expecting the crowds go bananas and they just don't they don't want warrior they don't want him at all i don't think they like his entrance because he's excited he has to uh it's kind of tempered a bit because in Madison Square Garden where this show is he has to like when he's going to run around the ring he has to step over the steps so he's like sprinting and he's like oh careful 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 right there we go there we go and that's probably the best thing warrior does in this match is walk over those steps because it's the only thing he takes any care about the rest of the time i mean he clotheslines sergeant slaughter off the hot tag three times and i think legitimately he would have killed me with them he's so reckless and horrible and ah oh, shit just not good like i said the, the best bit was sid the best bit was sid <laughs> Because also, like, there's this whole, through the show, they're speculating. Who's Sid going to side with? Is he going to call it down the middle? He's having a little laugh. We see some footage of him having a laugh with the three Iraqi sympathizers. And they're like, oh, well, that's that. And then he's just not. And then he poses with Hogan. I was assuming that there was going to be something in this that then led to the end of Royal Rumble 92, when there's that tension and they totally steal Ric Flair's limelight. No, none of that. Just two men. Hogan rips his vest off. I mean, I'm incredibly comfortable with my sexuality, but even I was a bit like, oh, this is a bit much. I thought they were going to start kissing. And I thought, well, that's, that's a turn. And I thought, well, it is a wedding. People get excited, don't they? There's a wedding after this. But yeah, this is dreadful. This is the main event of the show. I know this is the main event of the show because Hogan's in it. That's the only reason this match is even happening. Is so Hogan's on the card. But fuck me sideways. Jesus. After some of the stuff we watched beforehand as well, I was just like, oh, just give me something. something. That's all you've ever wanted, old man. Something. Something, yeah. The the three Iraqi sympathizers, that was the one that starred uh, Steve Martin, Terry Chase and Martin Short, wasn't it? Is that right? No, Ted Danson, Steve Gutenberg and <laughs> yes, okay. the other one. Yeah. No, hang on. No, no, that was the one with Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray and uh, <laughs> and, and uh, the other guy I can't remember the name of. Uh, Ernie Hudson. That's the one. Yeah. And Egon, who played Egon? I can't remember. He's in Groundhog. He's in Groundhog Day. He is Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis. That's the one. Yeah. God, God rest his soul. He directed Groundhog, Groundhog Day, Day as well. Yes, he did. Yeah, yes. yeah. He directed Groundhog Day. Sorry about that. Went into a bit of a strange moment there. Anyway. So, yeah. I mean, Gavin, do, is your, before I come to you with your, I have to ask you about 
like you're a talking point. Do you want to talk about what you said about the backstage stuff, first of all? There's two of- things I, w- I want to. Um, well, the, my, my main thing is, was that a joke about Groundhog Day that you said he directed Groundhog Day twice? Yes. Well done, because I thought that's a really funny joke. And then I thought, I don't know if that was a joke. Mm. Good joke. It, it went over my head, but I'll be honest. Uh, <laughs> and then the second thing was the uh, the backstage shenanigans. To be honest, maybe I should have researched better. But I, I know there was an issue regarding the there was some kind of contract dispute going on at the time between the WWF and the Ultimate Warrior and before he went out for the main event I think he basically demanded that Vince McMahon pay him up front possibly some money that he owed him yeah, um, so and he, would, he wouldn't go out until he unless he paid him and then the WWF years later sort of span it as if he'd kind of done some terrible thing by asking someone who owed him money to give him the money he owed him bastard I was going to say yeah that that's very much what you said actually is even still a little bit spun by WWE because the truth is that the Warrior had demanded from Vince McMahon a number of weeks or even months before this a contract which effectively matched Hogan's. That's what he demanded from Vince. It wasn't like he held him up. He just said, Look, "I want that's what I want. That was my demand." And Vince had given it to him because he wanted to still, I should assume, use the Warrior for this match. And of course, given it was enough time beforehand, could have changed, could have changed course easy enough. This isn't particularly a great main event uh, attraction as it is. So no problem there and then basically he pulled the old bait and switch on the warrior got him signed the contract and then released him basically after the show so it was actually wwe's as you said have spun it quite significantly from what the truth was as if the warrior was doing something horrific and he would do many many horrific things in his life later in life but this wasn't one of them (laughs) yeah not usually a sympathetic figure but uh, yeah, he, he probably was the one in the right on this occasion. Um, but, so my talking point, which I've hastily patched together as a newbie on this show, I, I might be cr- going over ground that's been covered many times, but it's incredible to me how different it is. This is, you know, it's 31 years ago, so it's a long time ago, but it's not, you know, it, it's it's still wrestling, still the same promotion and, and you know, the, the, the still a wrestling ring and, and commentators and, and a crowd. But it's the, the, the style of match is, is so different different and the way the crowd is invested in it is so different you know one of my one thing that that kind of got me a bit just a bit sick with wrestling was just that i think wrestling needs to be accessible to to casual fans like me and you know i i think a wrestling show a good wrestling show should be a show that that a kid turns over the tv and and that show is on and they get hooked by it you know in the first few minutes because because it's either obvious what's going on or it's being explained to you what's going on and I, i think that so much about modern wrestling i don't want to go on too much about you know bashing modern wrestling but so much of it for me is just it's just inaccessible it, it, it's kind of you know insider references and the matches are about sort of who can do the, the most gymnastic spots and and so on and, and you know i so much prefer this even when you end up with shitty main events like like this one you know on on the whole like i so much prefer watching two people have a fight or or three against two have a fight and and the crowd wants one person to win and wants one person to lose and and they react the same way you would react when you watch a football match you know when, I, when I'm watching a football match, I want my team to win. I, I don't. I, I'm not going to start chanting "This is awesome" because my <laughs> my team hit the bar twice in a row or whatever. You know, like it's it's a, such a different crowd reaction watching this show. Where you know, even in the Brett perfect match, which is you know a really good match, they're not chanting "This is awesome." They're they're chanting for Brett. And when when perfect kicks out and it's a really close kick out, they boo because they wanted Brett to win, and and they're booing the referee for not counting to three. And for me, it's really refreshing to watch. And and I I kind of I feel like it's worth the crappy elements of it to to watch something where where the crowd is invested in it in a way that I feel they should be. And, and 
you know, for me, for me to have watched this as an 11 year old as my first WWF pay-per-view, I, I the whole way through, I, I knew, you know, I could kind of follow what was going on. I feel like if I watched uh, WWF pay-per-view now as an 11 year old, I, I just wouldn't get half of it. I wouldn't really understand what was going on. I wouldn't know why should I want that person to win and why should I want that person to lose? I find it really refreshing to watch in spite of all the, you know, the drawbacks of the the early 90s or late 80s, early 90s WWF in ring style. Yeah, we, we have, I mean, we have discussed that quite a bit, especially recently, actually. I think that's come with, you know, I think I was, I was during 2021, I was going for a little bit of a resurgence in my interest in pro wrestling because I started watching AEW and actually quite enjoyed it. I found that they were sticking to something and then Punk and Brian turned up in AEW and everything went off the rails for me a little bit and it stopped doing the stuff you were talking about. It stopped seeming to be about the stories and much more about who can have the best match every single week. That just seemed to be what it was about all the time. And so as a consequence of that, over the last nine months or so, I've once again fallen away from watching wrestling because I've been a bit like, well, it's not doing what I wanted to do. The way I have previously summarized it is that it's become entirely about the art and not the act. And, and we're part of that. We're part of that. We do this podcast. We we are part of that that thing. We, we look at these things and critically assess them from an artistic perspective and all kinds of other perspectives. But, you know, you get that everywhere. Like there is Stranger Things podcast and there's Game of Thrones podcast and there's Star Wars podcast I'm sure not that I know anything about that but ultimately they they've they've all got those kinds of things going on the difference is, is that during those broadcasts they aren't also propagating the idea that it's about the art rather than the act they are asking you to be invested in Luke Skywalker they're not asking you to be invested in Mark Hamill and what he's doing and 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 you know his uh, non um character persona so yeah for me it's uh, I, I agree I think there's a, there's a big problem there but uh, I don't want to go into too much detail because we have already been on some long rambling rants around this in in past weeks i sort of am aware that that's probably a very common conversation amongst yeah. <laughs> lapsed wrestling fans or whatever you want to call us you know i think that that's probably a, a widely held feeling and yeah you, you're right we don't want to bang on about it because i tell you what why, why don't i give you a, a different perspective on it just as a something different a little bit different i think what's happened to wrestling is broadly true of a lot of different things it's now can become something that i understand less when I say I understand less, I mean it's not being made for me anymore. And that's fine because it shouldn't be made for me, especially WWE's product. I think AEW is trying to make something for me. I just don't like it very much. But WWE is not trying to make something for me. They're trying to make something for younger people who understand the world in a little bit of a different way. And that's, I think, true of a lot of different things. You mentioned football, Gavin. Even football does this now. It's trying to appeal to non-fans or people who aren't invested in the emotional side of football but instead promoting it much more as entertainment you know that's the only way you get fans from asia or north america or anywhere else in the world to be interested is go look at this is really fun you know it's not just about the result so i do think it broadly reflects most of popular culture in the, in that respect now i'm not saying i like that because that's not what i want but i also have to accept that it's not being made for me anymore uh, again well, having said we don't want to bang on about this for ages we're now banging on about it but um <laughs> i do i do think it's you know I, I do strongly believe that a more accessible wrestling product would have a much larger audience you know the, the premier league is thriving from making that decision to sell its product as entertainment i don't feel i mean wwe is making more money than they've ever made before so maybe i'm wrong but i feel <laughs> as a as a long-term thing i think 
you, you're only going to lose viewers. I think that the, the number of new viewers that, that wrestling is going to attract is just going to continually diminish if it if it carries on down the path. And maybe the uh, you know the recent changes in WWE will lead to some changes and make it more accessible. But I I, I do think uh, on the whole, an inaccessible wrestling product is less good and is going to be less successful. I think the the problem, and I was having this conversation with a friend actually on uh, last week. We were talking about films, and it's the same with wrestling. Everything is so fast now. And I've never really thought about it in the words that you've put it, Gavin. It is just inaccessible now because it moves so fast. There's no pause. There's no stop. And something that was stuck, and it's not always a good thing, but watching this card and watching older cards that we've done for this show, there's just a bit of patience, isn't there? They milk everything. Yeah, that's it. They sell. Like There's an interview I heard years ago with Shawn Michaels, and he's talking talking to, must have been after he retired, he was just getting into NXT. And he said, he's like, the one thing that he says to people is like you sell and then when you think it's going on too long you sell longer and you keep it going and you build that tension and there isn't any and I take this with like I was saying with films and also with wrestling like I watch SummerSlam there's no tension in anything that they put forward there were some very good matches on that card but there was nothing that would make me go go oh, you know what I can't wait to see what happens on Raw tomorrow night whereas back in like that golden era that you were talking about Gavin 97 98 that's all we wanted I just wanted to know what happened what did happen something with Austin definitely so I was in yeah it's just all um I think so to your pointing as well it's not for us old farts is it no simply not it's just simply not and you know and that's it's not great but I think at some point you have to accept that that's that's just where we are and and in, in fairness mm. most popular culture isn't because what television executives have done and have always done is they've tried to find things that will attract younger viewers who are 18 mm. to 35 because they're the ones who are least likely to be sat at home watching television yeah and so they have to work harder to get the audience the audience of everybody else is already sat at home on their ass watching television yeah. before we go to break there's one thing i wanted to talk about because we we talked about Yoma Warrior and the fact that he was off and after this show. There was apparently plans for the Warrior to have a feud with Jake Roberts after this point. Now, when we covered Royal Rumble 1992, old man, we talked, that was like episode three, I think. Mm. We talked in quite a lot of depth about how WrestleMania 8 could have been so different as a show. Mm. So, you know, it could have been Hogan Flair in the main event. Roberts versus Savage should have had their kind of blow off to their big feud that had been going all winter. Could and should have been had Marty Jannetty not been suspended. Shawn Michaels versus Marty Janetti at that show you know all kinds of different things and, and sort of lay out to that show but this led me to think that things could have been even different now at this point Savage was still not wrestling he'd retired having lost the Warrior at WrestleMania 7 which we've also recovered we've also covered in the past so go back and listen to that in our back catalog if you haven't heard it yet and I'm not certain that they would have bought him out of retirement had Warrior not walked away or not been suspended at this point or whatever it was fired because they had the program set up for Jake Roberts which was going to be against Warrior presumably so they didn't need Savage to come back. The only reason Savage came back was to face Roberts in, in storyline anyway. I just wonder whether or not we would have never got Savage in 92 had Warrior not been sacked or suspended. I'm, yeah. I'm quite fascinated by this period because it's the uh, like my first months of being a fan. And and it's only years later that I look back and think, yeah, like that for, from SummerSlam 91 to WrestleMania 8, there there must have been so many changes that were made kind of on the fly that, that yeah, certainly were not in their long term plans. And I had that same thought about Savage watching this show. Was there actually a plan at this point for him to even come out of retirement? Because, I mean, it was really soon after he'd retired. You, you could understand them doing something a year or two down the line, but it, he'd only retired at the previous pay-per-view. And yeah. by, by Survivor Series, he was reinstated. So, yeah, like, 
you know, where would Sir Justice have fitted into to all of it as well? You know, they'd obviously brought him in having big plans, presumably from the way they ended the show with his little peephole uh, ex- exhibition <laughs> through the curtain. He, they were kind of setting him up to be Hogan's friend who was then going to turn on Hogan and have a match. But they presumably they weren't planning to have that storyline all wrapped up by WrestleMania as they did no no definitely because presumably they were setting flare up for that match with hogan at wrestlemania like at this point it just find it very really interesting it really was a lot of change going on i presume sid would have faced the undertaker in his first big feud i'm assuming that's what they would have done for sid and the undertaker the other thing to say is that um, well we'll get to it actually no we'll get to it. i was going to start talking about something else but there is more about this to come when we talk about the wedding so we'll get to that later on but for the moment we will take a quick break and then be back with the rest of the show the celebration takes place out of the arena here at Madison Square Garden. I'm here along with the corrections officers from New York City and the Mountie. And as I recall, you had backup of another kind. Some time ago, let's take a look. man not soon to forget those actions and by the way tonight after your match one or the other is headed for the pokemoni this is the way it's gonna happen mean gene oakland after i done beat your fat mug big boss man these little local hick cops are gonna come and grab you and they're gonna hang up your hands and they're gonna take you and i don't want you gentlemen to do it the new york style I want you gentlemen to do it the Mountie kind of justice. If he fights back, I want you to drag him through these halls. And once we get back here, we want to can him in this little old paddy wagon. And once he get in here, it'll be your job to shackle his ankles, make sure he doesn't run away, shut the doors, and throw the key away, and bring him to that local New York caboose house. And we'll see you there, boss man. All right, I thank you very much. Let's get an opposing point of view. Standing by right now is Sean Mooney. Big boss man, after what we just witnessed, it is clear there is no question in the mind of the Mountie just who is going to win the jailhouse match tonight. I believe the Mountie has the wrong idea. He shouldn't be out there talking to New York City's finest on how to treat me. He should be on his hands and knees talking to the man upstairs, praying to God that he makes it through till tomorrow morning because he's going to be the one who spends a long, hard night in jail. Okay, welcome back. So let's start from the top here at SummerSlam 1991. We've got the match made in heaven and the match made in hell promo video at the start. And Vince McMahon shouts into the microphone, nuptials turn to napalm as we go into the show. This is in Madison Square Garden as well, which is uh, interesting. I hadn't realized that before we started watching it. And the commentary team, as we've already discussed, is Gorilla Monsoon, Bobby Heenan and Roddy Piper. Big chance for Roddy as they are introduced to the home audience. The first match of the night is a six-man tag match. It sees the dragon, otherwise otherwise known as Ricky's the dragon. Stingo. No, 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 no. It's the dragon. It's, For some reason, yeah, it's just the dragon. And the British Bulldog, otherwise known as David Boy Smith, and the Texas Tornado, otherwise known as Kerry Von Herrick, against the Warlord, not Tom's favourite version of the Warlord, but still the no. Warlord, and no. Power and Glory, Paul, Paul Roma, and Hercules. This match goes for just over 10 minutes and ends when Steamboat pins Paul Roma after a flying crossbody. Old man, why didn't you tell us about this? I can't remember, to be honest. 
<laughs> no, I'm, I, a little note on the opening. The opening with Vince is cracking stuff. Just got the SummerSlam in that famous font, just running down, just some wrestlers in it. Oh, it's lovely. Lovely. And the line that you said, when nuptials turn to napalm, I was like, go on, wrestling. He's also doing properly cartoon Vince voice as well during this yeah. uh, video package. He is. So I actually... I've got to be honest, I really quite enjoyed this. I thought you've got the dragon, not Ricky Steamboat, and the bulldog, and the tech, well, the bulldog, those two, you know, you can go. The hills are not the best in the world, and Texas Tornado at this point isn't really a, isn't really an attraction, but I just enjoyed this. You've got bulldog with his braids. He suplexes Warlord, which is incredibly impressive because he seems to do a fair bit of the work. The dragon, not Ricky Steamboat, is Probably as good as I've seen him in anything in this match. Just really enjoyed it. Maybe it's because they're not calling him Steamboat and he's not going on about being a dad. Maybe that's the (laughs) other thing as well. There is a little bit of confusion. Warlord just closed eyes the dragon, not Ricky Steamboat for some reason. And Hercules is just watching, just looking incredibly confused. He's just like, what's going on here then? So I was wrestling me. Oh, cool. All right, no worries. Slick, the Doctor of Style, is the heroes manager. Oh, there uh, was another black person on the show. There was indeed, yeah. Yeah, but when you said that, I was like, I'll wait until the match comes up and Gavin will be delighted. He says, when the heels are dominating a little bit, they're giving, a, giving the dragon not Ricky Steamboat a beat up going the ball game is in our ballpark <laughs> now I don't know what that means but I liked it and I just liked this match because everyone gets their little time to shine it's 10 minutes doesn't outstay its welcome the hot tag to the old Texas Tornado is lovely the crowd absolutely fucking love him always did didn't they old, old Keza Von Ez. Always loved him. And uh, yeah, there's a blind tag by the Bulldog. Gets caught by the Warlord, which is incredible. And uh, the finish is a bit weird, a bit confusing. No, I didn't really know what was going on. Didn't know who was legal. Is it Warlord gets pinned? No, Paul Roma. I had a, a one in three. And I fucked, I fucked myself. All you have to remember is the Warlord is Steve Austin on steroids and Hercules yeah. is Jake Roberts on steroids. And Paul <laughs> Roma is just the other one. <laughs> That's right. But yeah. Not a lot, not a whole lot to dislike here. And I was like, you know what? 1991 might be the year for me. <laughs> Finally, you found big, it. Yeah, it's big, it's cartoonish, it's stupid. You've got a dragon, not Ricky Steamboat, who's not Ricky Steamboat for some reason. Yeah, it's good. Bit disappointed to see Bulldog in 1991 shoved away in a six-person tag. I would have liked a one-on-one, but yeah. i tell you who wasn't particularly happy about this match. It would be David Boy Smith, who all year long, fights the warlord and does nothing else that's it that's all he mm-hmm. fucking does all fucking year wrestlemania they fight each other survivor series are on opposing teams this choosing texas which is the last pay-per-view of the year they fight each other again in a singles match he must have been so fucking fed up of the warlord he must have been so fed up of being impressive by suplexing the warlord yeah they don't have an interaction on the level of their match at WrestleMania 7, do they, in this no. match? Which is, as we said, actually surprisingly decent. It's not too yeah, bad. yeah. Yeah, which is kind of like saying that turd doesn't smell too bad, isn't it? <laughs> Gavin, what did you think? I think the wrestler that Paul Roma looks the most like is possibly Ken Shamrock. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a definite resemblance there. There's another mm. resemblance later on on the show, but I'll, I'll save that. It's a, it's a oh, doozy. lovely. I thought this was a, basically, I fucking love a six-man tag. I don't think you could beat a six-man tag. I think that's like the perfect number of people in a tag team match. And and they used to do this quite a lot on their pay-per-views. They'd just stick a random six-man tag on there and it'd be just 10 minutes of... Like, it's a difficult match to do badly, even with some of the crap in this match. A six-man tag is is generally a good match. Um, I thought Steamboat... Or, sorry, the, the Dragon. Yeah, he's he not looked, Steamboat. Come on, Gavin. He's not Steamboat. He looked, it's, uh, it's been made very clear by old man. He's not Steamboat. Yeah. He looked 
very embarrassed by his um, dragon outfit, which uh-huh. does <laughs> yeah. have a sort of Halloween look to it. It looks like a little boy going out trick or treating. His wings are attached to his fingers via yeah. a, little, a little pulley string, which I yeah. found interesting. It wasn't they're not attached to the back of his hand or anything. It is that cheap that they've just got this little pulley <laughs> string around his fingers. But the crowd's impressed when he blows fire. It's like they oh, yeah. didn't didn't know that that was a trick people could do. He's one of the forgotten wrestlers for me. I think you know, he, Steamboat was really good, and he, he was I think around sort of the late 80s early 90s i think the kind of smart fans uh, what smart fans there were kind of held him in really high esteem and uh, you can sort of see why j- just in this match you know in a six-man match i think he really stands out as the the outstanding uh, wrestler in in the match as far as you know his his selling and the whole like baby face in peril thing and then you know his, his flying and he's so crisp and you know i thought he it was just a glimpse of how good he was this was a weird run he had because I, I don't think he'd been back long at this point he'd obviously been the uh feud with rick flair in the nwa a couple of years before this and had some classic matches and then just sort of turned up in WWE after a few months and and was gone by the next pay-per-view so uh, maybe he didn't like his gimmick who knows maybe maybe he was uh, the, the embarrassment of his Halloween outfit just became too much the things I noted down on my on my double-sided A3 sheet of notes <laughs> is Roddy Piper said something really unfortunate about Kerry Von Erich being Texas dead which yes. was only about 18 months later he literally did die in Texas the heels didn't get an entrance I always think that's a that's a bad like you don't really get that anymore but in those sort of early WWF pay-per-views you'd sometimes you'd get currently in the ring and you sort of knew at that point that they were they were doing the job Hercules looks really old which I might have mentioned before even in this match I, I sort of made a note about the crowd just that the you know the, the crowd is so into it and this is you know this is like mid carders to lower carders and you mm. know none of, none of them really had any storylines going on apart from a, that sort of never-ending feud between Bulldog and Warlord but you know the, the crowd was really really into this match and I think you alluded to it but the warlord definitely fucked up the finish there was there was something where roma had to kick out of the bulldogs running power slam at two because the warlord had fucked up the finish so it, it did slightly confuse matters but yeah i think you know for considering the wrestlers in this match it was it was pretty good but i, I don't think you can go wrong with this man tag really no i thought this was really decent thoroughly enjoyed this great little opener not a lot to say about other than that to be honest because you've covered everything hercules looking old I, for some reason when he talked about that i was like wow and then wcw signed him like the following year and put him in a mask i mean if you're going to sign a hercules and people know who he is don't they so at the very least leave the mask off otherwise why bother he may as well not assign him he's looking old he's not particularly good it just don't make any sense to me but uh overall yeah very thoroughly enjoyed it oh yeah and I, very thoroughly enjoyed very thoroughly, it <laughs> very thoroughly yeah absolutely yeah definitely the dragon thing that really stuck out for me that was what really stuck out for me about this i guess that Vince McMahon was just trying to have his own back basically after ricky steamboat just uh, again you know he'd already done it once by having him kind of jobbed out to honky talk man now he was kind of back in the company he's all right i'm gonna properly do him in now I'm going to give him the dragon costume and we're just going to call him the dragon and put him in a tag team with the British Bulldog and the Texas Tornado two other men who've actually got kind of some name value with their actual names as opposed to this uh, WWE-ified name decent in, to- in in general yeah really really quite a good way to start a show and this is quite quite a familiar way really for them to start a show not necessarily with a six-man tag although that did happen but just with a quite fast-paced tag team match involving lesser important individuals so after this Sean Morley is backstage and interviews Mr. Perfect. Sean, Sean Morley. Morley. Val Venus, yeah, friend of the show. Venus. 
Sean Mooney. Sorry, my uh, my notes. I've just read them and uh, my handwriting is very, very poor. Sean Mooney interviews Mr. Perfect backstage and he's with the coach. I couldn't remember who the coach was. Was he anyone <laughs> important? The coach was uh, John Tolos, who had been a big deal in like the L.A territory around around 1970-ish I think he broke records with a feud against Fred Blassie and you would not know that watching this because he just seems totally not needed completely useless and like a sort of shit version of Bill Alfonso <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely very very strange felt like he just had to do it because well they felt that they needed to do it because the brain was no longer managing at the time so they needed someone with Mr Perfect Perfect says that Hart is excellent but he's not perfect that's his main kind of catchphrase here beautiful that leads us into the second match of the night it is Bret Hart versus Mr Perfect Mr Perfect defending his intercontinental title it is a match that goes for 18 minutes and it ends when Mr Perfect goes for a leg drop to the balls I think is what he's trying to go for and Hart catches him in the process and counters it into the sharpshooter which then the referee jumps up and says that Mr Perfect submitted well before he ever possibly would do because he's not even in the sharpshooter by the time he jumps up and does it very strange maybe they're trying to save Mr Perfect back i don't know but that's what happened old man what did you make of this well if they were trying to save his back then brett Hart didn't do him any favors because he <laughs> cinches that fucking bitch in afterwards like, yeah after the yeah. bell's gone <laughs> if i were them i'd have been really fucked off with the referee i'd have been like fuck's sake mate we've had 18 minutes in four seconds what's another two not fucking difficult, is it? Yeah, you literally have one job, ref. Who's the ref in this match? Can't remember. Is it Hebner? Hebner. Yeah, isn't it? He's let himself down. He screwed Brett again, didn't he? Yeah. Just like in 97, <laughs> fucking turncoat. Anyway, this is good. This is very good. This is excellent, I think. I thoroughly enjoyed it. They just start off very intensely. They have a lovely little hair-pulling exchange in the first few minutes, which I thoroughly enjoyed because it's just really stupid. Like, it's just really silly. But when um Perfect tries to run off, Brett Art just pulls his hair and he's like, he's just pulling his hair and I'm like bloody heck mate that's a bit naughty but very good but very enjoyable stuff the barricade spot so for those who don't know Brett's on the side of the ring and Perfect runs into him and then Brett goes into a man who's by the barricade all of the brutality of the hitting of the barricade is taken by this poor man who is about half the size of Bret Hart and I remember in my mind this barricade spot being absolutely brutal and it's just not I was a bit ah that's a bit disappointing but never mind we'll take that there's a Perfect Plex kick out by old Brett which gets the crowd something rotten and Perfect sells it beautifully as does Heenan on commentary as well because Heenan's very much he just can't let go he can't let go of Perfect he's always willing him on he's like even I think as Monsoon says even though he sat, he fired you he's like yeah I still can't I still can't give up on him I still can't give up on him they tell a lovely little story in the match of just this is obviously Brett's big night in effect winning this intercontinental title and it's just really good i really like the fact as well and watching the bret hart matches we have done he uses pinning combinations just on their own so like he picks perfect up so that he can put him in a small package in this match and i'm saying just a tiny little thing there's no reversal no nothing it's just lovely and it's just really very very good it's not as good as their other match that we covered the king of the ring but it's a bloody close run thing and it's match of the night by about 27 miles i think that's very exacting of you 27 yeah i think so it might be 28 i don't know but yeah this is match of the night i just thoroughly enjoyed it i was a bit bummed out that this was on second because i have 
watched this match numerous times and I remember it being good. And when it was on second, I was a bit like, oh, no, oh, no. Because <laughs> they'd already mentioned that the Legion of Doom were fighting the Nasty Boys. I've been like, bloody heck. But yeah, I enjoyed this. We're off to a cracking start. I've got to be honest, we've had a great six-man tag and we've had this cracking match. I'm rocking and rolling. 91 is the year for me. I'm high on life here. <laughs> Such a shame it was like 30 years ago. <laughs> well, that's it. I finally found my year. Maybe I'll start dressing like I'm in 1991. What would that that even entail? I don't know. I'll I'll look into it. Gavin, any uh, any thoughts on what old man should wear if he's doing that? I'm trying to remember what I was wearing in 1991. I don't know that that necessarily was the fashion. A bum bag, cycling shorts. Shell suits were maybe a tiny bit before, actually. How about Mm. a, um, what are they called? Uh, Spliffy gear. Uh, Yeah. That would have been state of the art in 1991. (laughs) That was, uh, yeah. Yeah, you'd have been you'd have been pretty much the, the coolest person in all of whatever town you lived in. He was already. Yeah, yes. of course. So now I have uh, recently, having been invited onto this show, I renewed my WWE Network subscription and I and I treated myself, given that it's summer and I work in a school and I'm on my summer holidays, I have watched all of the first four SummerSlams. Mm. And this is, yeah, I know, I know, I know how to live. Uh, <laughs> this is the first really good SummerSlam match. There, there are some decent ones, but, you know, this is the first, the first one that you know I, I don't like to veer into star rating territory but this is certainly the first SummerSlam match that exceeds four stars I, I would say by by some distance probably I mean it might not be 27 miles ahead of the second best SummerSlam match to this point but it's you know it's a few miles ahead it's at least like a half marathon ahead <laughs> of so, yeah. so you, you would include the uh, previous year's match between Heart Foundation and Demolition in that uh, little uh yeah, yeah, I would. I, I think that's. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I only watched that about four days ago. It's a good match, but yeah, I think this is some distance ahead of that. I think the only unfortunate thing about this match is the ending. Really, you know, the, it would have been much better if there'd been that those few seconds of perfect being in the sharpshooter and kind of fighting it. And I, I don't know how much of the finish. I, my understanding had always been that perfect submitted instantly because of the pain he was in with his back, and he had back injury going into this match, and and as a result of this match, he then missed over a year. Of action and I think that makes him my MVP of the night I think that the, his performance in this match is is exceptional given the you know the, the condition he was in it's kind of similar to the Shawn Michaels WrestleMania 14 thing where you know he, he was in no condition really to be having a match and yet he was taking these these great bumps to to help to put Brett over and Perfect is one of those people who is remembered as being a, a great wrestler and you know of the WWF roster of that time he was one of the outstanding workers but there were so few good wrestlers in WWF he didn't really have a chance to have outstanding matches on a regular basis and you know this is a kind of rare occasion where he got the chance to have 20 minutes against an opponent who could be the underdog and perfect could kind of dominate and be a proper dominant heel rather than be kind of selling the whole time like he like he would against someone like Hulk Hogan uh, and, I, and I think we sort of you get a glimpse on here of, of the sorts of matches perfect would have been having against different sorts of opponents during that run he, it was almost a shame that he was around when he was because I think if he'd come around a few years later he'd, he'd have had a string of great pay-per-view singles matches you can see why they pushed Brett you know it's it's really evident in this match compared to watching the rest of the card Brett's his sort of crispness and how much he puts into everything there's so much it looks so much more like a proper fight and like a proper a proper tussle where you know a a lot of the a lot of the other matches on this card you know like the clotheslines are quite lazy and there's a lot of uh, light being shown in a number of in a number of matches on this card but on this 
in in this match it's kind of you know feels really a strong style it's probably not not the right word for it but it, you know it kind of feels it, it looks like a proper a proper wrestling match going on mm. between people i haven't watched a king of the ring match for quite a long time but i, I was wondering watching this one whether this one was better than the king of the ring match and I, and I kind of thought this one probably is because it has a defined heel and face but i'd like to watch the king of the ring match compared to because uh, you know I, I remember that that was when they were both baby faces wasn't it and i'm not quite sure how they would have bettered this match as both baby faces so we we as i said we recently covered king of the ring 93 and we watched that match and i won't tell you what they do but they do actually manage to position mr perfect as a heel in the match uh quite well so as i said at the time actually the match is amazing but the before and after even better than the match itself so uh i'll leave it at that go back and watch it give yourself a treat give yourself another tra- well, treat i, I am um, it made me want to watch that match to compare yeah. to yeah so um yeah maybe i will um add it to my uh add it to my watch list so th- let me start there then first of all I did say during that King of the Ring review that I was surprised. I was expecting that match to not be as good as this. And having watched that match, I thought it probably was better than this. And now having watched this match, I think I was right. I think the King of the Ring match is better than this. I think they do go one step further. Also, they don't have the end that this match has, which is (laughs) the real disappointment of this match. Touching on what you said about Bret Hart. I was just thinking whilst you were talking about it, like, because you were sort of trying, you were struggling to define Brett's style a little bit. And I thought that's interesting because I often think that there isn't anybody like Brett in terms of the way he does it. Like, you're right, he's absolutely super crisp. There's a reason why the excellence of execution entirely worked because he really did execute everything excellently. But he's also capable of doing the WWE style really well. He's not a strong style wrestler because strong style wrestlers tend to actually hurt their opponents to, to a degree. Yeah, that was the wrong phrase to use. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't find the phrase but that's my point there isn't really a phrase for him because he everything he does looks so believable and yet is entirely not is entirely safe entirely low impact he just has a completely unique way about him that i i struggle to think who is like brett as in terms of the style of work that he does at any period i can't equate him to anybody else i don't know if anyone's got any suggestions I was going to say one, but now now I feel like I might embarrass myself and never be invited back onto this uh, onto this podcast again. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Dax Harwood in okay. in some ways reminds me of him. Not that, a lot that's of agreement cool. there. No, I, I don't disagree. <laughs> but it, I think it just shows that even that's kind of yeah maybe you know what I mean. The, but there isn't you know what I mean. The, is, it's, yeah, he's unique, isn't he? Yeah, it, it's yeah it's it's difficult. It's almost like Dax Harwood's the person I can think of who is the most like him. But yeah, yeah, he he was very much unique in in his style and so those two things were really interesting i also thought that oh man we you didn't mention him and he in fairness he's briefly very very fleetingly on screen but as the camera first pans to Stu and helen which i think is the first time we see brett's parents at a wrestling event but as they as it pans to them to the left of them he's there he's got his aviators on old bruce hart is stood right next to them being a cunt like always stood right there <laughs> nix's parents but they thankfully they changed the camera angle mm. after that first time and you don't see him again that's the only time you see him well um, with the aftermatch stuff that i'm sure we'll get to i've got a little comment about him oh is it Ooh. he's the bruce hart's the blonde one right yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do see him in the aftermatch. Oh, bit, okay. Yeah, he does. Apologies. He does get involved. Yeah, apologies. I, I, I must have missed that bit. The the thing I wanted to pull out, because you pull out most of the big highlights. The one thing I did want to pull out was the fact that Brett had earlier done a crucifix pin. He goes for it again in the middle of the match, and Mr. Perfect reverses it into a Samoan drop, and I just love that. That was just really, mm. really nice because they'd already laid the groundwork for it. I I just think it's great. A match now 
they would do the same spot, but they wouldn't have done the crucifix early on in the match. They would have just mm. done gone straight to the counter. This one did the crucifix, and then they told the story of perfect, effectively learning from the past and using the smudge. I just thought very little, very small, very nice little piece of something that I just don't think you see very much of that kind of thing where they lay the groundwork earlier in the match to allow them to do a nice spot, not a really over the top spot, but just a really nice little spot. So as you said, after the match, Brett goes to celebrate with his parent, Lord Alfred Hayes asks Stu how he feels Stu says it's <laughs> tremendous and Hayes then says he's speechless with that before he can even say anything else um, I was a bit like we we have made fun and everybody's made fun quite frankly of Stu Hart over the years but in this case I was like fucking hell talk about the blind leading the blind you've got Lord Alfred Hayes and Stu Hart sharing the screen and they're the oh. only ones with the microphone we're in real trouble <laughs> it's fucking embarrassing <laughs> and he, he's trying to talk to her and then Brett turns up and then when he asks the question then he starts answering then like you said he just takes the mic away I'm like, what are you doing? And then I see him. He's trying to muscle in, isn't he? <laughs> or, or sorry, just saw his aviators and his crap leather jacket. Oh, prick. The same ones he was wearing at WrestleMania 26, many, many no. years later. Almost definitely, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you, you know he's a fucking skinflint. <laughs> He's a skinflint unless Brett's paying. For, unless Brett's paying for dinner. And then he's like, oh, I might have a starter, actually, and a dessert, if that's all right, Brett. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Then he goes out on his own with his wife and probably kids, all wearing aviators. And he's like, sorry, kids, tap water's all round, and we're just going to have some bread. Because Uncle Brett's not paying the fucking cheapskate. <laughs> Never before has, has anybody had their character so thoroughly assassinated, based hey. on so little, as, as Bruce during the course of this podcast series hey he wears aviators in a leather jacket <laughs> oh, amazing amazing stuff so after this is an advert for hot ticket on pay-per-view oh. uh the story of hulk hogan a real american story due in october i didn't even know this existed but obviously no. there was a little pay-per-view documentary that wwe had put on as well i mean that's fucking nuts isn't it you imagine that so like, i don't know how much they would have been charging for that but you imagine they're like oh um, there's going to be a show on, on Stone Cold Steve Austin you know like, oh but you could pay 20 quid to watch it on pay-per-view I'd be like no no I can't no that's wrong huh? I'm not gonna do that but I'll tell you what I bet there's no hunksters did mm, yeah and to be true. honest if I'd have had Sky at the time and it had been like a fiver I'd have probably asked me mum and dad well can I watch the whole Kogan story and my dad would have gone it would be so pathetic <laughs> I'll pay for Mr Nanny instead yes and then Suburban Commando, the double. So next up, Dean Oakland interviews the Bushwhackers and Andre the Giant. We see footage of the natural disasters attacking Andre on television. And then the Bush- Bushwhackers talk some nonsense. And I gave up trying to take notes on it. I realise what they said. So Andre talks a bit as well. So you get... Aah! Aah! And then... Aah! 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 And then that's it. And I was just like, what's going on? How big is one of the crutches? that Andre the Giant's got. It suddenly dawned on me when he's coming down to me. I'm like, fuck, he's like eight foot. How big is that? That crutch is probably taller than me. I don't think he is eight foot, old man. I think he might be uh, exaggerating there a little bit. You you might be in WWE measurement land there a little bit, if I'm honest. Well, no, because I asked somebody who worked for WWE at the time. They said he was nine foot three. <laughs> nine, nine foot three, £7,000. <laughs> That's how much the crutches cost. <laughs> yeah. 
Come on, but they did. You imagine how strong they'd have to be. Fucking hell. Gavin, did you make anything out from what they said? No, I was I was too distracted by uh, the video where it's really obvious that the earthquake and Jimmy Hart are sort of helping Andre the Giant to fall over. I don't know if you noticed <laughs> yeah. that, but uh, yeah. earthquake hits him in the back of the leg and then and then holds onto his leg really gently while Jimmy Hart kind of cushions him on his way down. Because I think he mm. I think he was on crutches because he really was injured yeah. or at least just old and falling apart. Mm. I don't know what the hell they said. I don't really care. <laughs> this is his last appearance on WWE television at all. He did appear on some house shows, I believe, in the UK after this, much like Hogan, basically, when he left mm. WWF back in 93. Um, but yes, and he does appear in some WWE shows, one of which we watched last year uh, in 1992 before he passed away early in 93. He doesn't look very healthy at WrestleMania, but the drop off is enormous to this show. I think just the way that he walks, because he obviously sweats through his jacket, doesn't he? At WrestleMania 7, where he's so hot. Poor little bugger. So yeah, the, the next match is the Natural Disasters against the Bushwhackers in a six and a half minute tag team match. And what happens here is that the Natural Disasters squash Butch between them and Earthquake hits his finish for the pin. Now, I seem to remember a very, very long time ago, uh, me asking the question, what the fuck is Earthquake's finishing move actually called? And I still have had no reasonable answer on this question. I even asked it on another podcast that I did, that I guessed it on. They didn't know. I've asked it on Twitter. No one knows what the name of this move is. Is it not just called the Earthquake Splash? Well, if it is, it's incredibly unfortunate and disappointing climax to that whole quest <laughs> I built to find the name. Could you not have come up with something better? The Tremor or something? Yeah, there are probably better names. But yeah, you, you're right, though. It isn't. Yeah, may, I, I don't know. Maybe I just made that up. Maybe it isn't called that. No, you are 100% correct. I just looked yes. up on, on our good friend Wikipedia because it's talking about and I was like, I know when he took out Hogan. Yeah, with his earthquake splash. So after the after the match, Andre faces up to the disasters and he looks like he might be in a little bit of trouble until Hawk and Animal walk to the ring and back him up and they uh, they send the natural disasters and Jimmy Hart packing. Gavin, what did you think of this? I was surprised at how much offense the Bushwhackers got in. This should have just been a complete squash. And yeah. actually, they it was pretty much 50-50. It was probably the worst match on the show. Uh, and the Bushwhackers were absolutely awful. The whole thing with them, like all that, all that weird stuff they used to do, like biting people's asses. Like yeah. it's maybe I, I'm tr- I was trying to remember as an 11 year old, what did I make of the Bushwhackers? I think I probably thought they were fun. It's so telling that the way you said the word fun was, was almost <laughs> with disdain, as if fun is not to be had by anybody. <laughs> I'm just disgusted with my 11 year old self. What the, what the hell was he thinking? Uh, but yeah, it, it the, the main thing, the main takeaway from this match for me was that the Bushwhackers should have just been completely squashed and, and they weren't. And I sort of remember, I just assumed they were. And then uh, I was watching the match and what the hell is going on? You know, Earthquake's doing loads of selling for them. The LOD bit afterwards was, that was kind of interesting that they had the LOD appear before their match, sort of taking away that kind of, not, not that it really did take away from their crowd pop when they came out for their match later because they were over like hell. But uh, yeah, it was, I, I was, I'd sort of forgotten that they came out and rescued Andre. But uh, I suppose that was quite nice. Nice way to sort of kick off their feud with the natural disasters i thought this was all right actually i think given who's in it i thought i'll take this six minutes and 27 seconds again like you i was very surprised how much the bushwhackers got in but then also when you see how popular they are and this is an innocent time so i don't think they were ever going to get crushed crushed 
But uh, I thought this was all right, you know. Andre looked pretty happy on the outside early in the match. I thought he looks like he's having a good time. He took the hat off then, as well uh, as he could, though, didn't he? God, not half. Yeah, he was like, fucking get it. But he had two of them on his head, didn't he? Made him look like a right cunt, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and this is Andre the Giant, one of the legends of all time in the business. And the Bushwhackers are putting their stupid little, like, I don't know, like, torn up hats on his head. Disgraceful behaviour, to be honest. But yeah, I thought, uh, I thought this was all right. I don't know that I could have asked any more from this than I got, and I was happy. I didn't like Legion of Doom coming down because, to your point, Gavin, they're a big deal. Like, just have them come out normally. Also, very, it's very difficult to do, I mean, they didn't run in, they walked in, but to do a walk-in in that narrow space when you're wearing those bloody spikes. I was just like, someone's going to lose an eye, yeah? This is dangerous. <laughs> I this saw that generally dangerous. about their short Yeah. Episode. Like, it always strikes me as a very dangerous thing. Also, another thing about Legion of Doom coming down, animal's hair is fucking repulsive. <laughs> it's round the back, you've got like a line of hair, and then you've got the middle bit as well, and I'm just like, that's horrible. Uh, we get a promo later where Hawk's talking. Hawk has evidently newly shaved his head, but he's been in the sun a bit before he shaved his head because his face is quite red and his head is not. So it, it all looks a bit silly. But anyway, back to the match. Quite enjoyed it. Don't like the bum biting, like you said, Gavin. Don't get it. I was glad they didn't lick any children. Because when we watched, I think about the WrestleMania 7, they were licking a lot of kids. And I was like, you ain't Fred Tolbert, so you're going to have to stop that shit, aren't you? Allegedly, possibly. Good, good job you got the right name this time. You? Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> Throw around those kinds of accusations. Yeah. Yeah, you know what, right? I'm three for three, yeah? And I'm having a nice time. Yeah, I mean, what what do you say about this? It's, it's all right, isn't it? I mean, I guess, to your point, Gavin, I guess being a comedy act in the early 90s wasn't such a big problem for the legitimacy of a pro wrestler of any kind as it would be now or even... 10 years after this, you know, being a comedy wrestler would have been a, a severe problem for presenting a wrestler as being competitive against others that you hope to potentially maybe not make money out of, but certainly present in a strong fashion. Perhaps then it wasn't such a big deal. And the Bushwhackers were really popular somehow. I mean, it was people like you, Gavin, when you were 11, basically cheering for them. It's your fault. I kept them going. It's yeah. your fault. I suppose the thing about the comedy is that they were, they weren't presented as if they were a joke physically, were they? It was, it was, you know, yeah, they, they did comedy and it was shit, but <laughs> they, they were, you know, they, they, they weren't presented as like, as being the best tag team in the whole promotion, but, but they were, you know, they, they were always presented as being competitive in matches. They just happened to bite people's asses. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, during this match, it's also worth saying that Bobby Heenan walks out during mm. the match. He says that Hulk Hogan is in his dressing room and therefore that's his cue to leave because he wants to go and interview the Hulkster. And that's what comes next. He goes to Hogan's dressing room. He knocks on the door and holds the WCW title belt to uh, Hogan. It is actually the big gold belt. And you don't see Hogan, but he challenges him on behalf of Ric Flair and the person who is supposed to be Hogan behind the door then slams the door in his face so Heenan doesn't get to do what he wanted to do just to, I guess this is a good time I guess to speak about the fact that Flair had just signed for the company and they were they had this actual belt that uh, Flair had brought with him we spoke about it to some length when we covered WCW something from 1991 just before this I um, can't remember what it was now Great American Bash possibly possibly don't, don't know can't remember Drunk. <laughs> probably but yeah just just an interesting thing this Flair coming over and with the belt I think the Great American Bash was the first show without him so would that, that make sense it. 
that in a minute. Yeah, this was a this was sort of a weird segment because you can't see Hulk Hogan. It's obvious he's not there. And then the door gets slammed in his face and, and he's really pissed off. But I don't really know why he's so pissed off about having the door slammed in his face. And then the the, uh, the other commentators don't react to it at all. Like they just completely no sell it. I don't know if I don't know if Piper or Monsoon all night even say the word, the name Ric Flair. It's, mm-hmm. it's like they're it's almost like they don't really want to talk about him. Well, I wondered whether it was, again, a, a way of legitimizing the idea that Flair was unsanctioned, that he was mm. coming in here with this title that was alien to WWF and that only Bobby Heenan was talking about the fact that the real world's champion was now here. Also, interestingly positioned in that way as the real mm. world's champion. Yeah, very strange that they've got their world title and it's not like, oh, we can fight to find out who is the real world champion. It's like you said, Tinky, it's like, I've got a real world championship and he's the real world champion. It's like, hang on a minute. I know you're a heel, but come on, that's really burying the company that he's coming into, isn't it? And well, anyway, I suppose it is Hogan. So. It, I guess it's also just they're leaning into a tradition, aren't they? That's what they're doing. Mm. They're saying that we've got the, old, the other belt that's always been around for dates back to arguably the early 1900s, if you really want to go back that far you know so this is the real world champion but i wondered if they just didn't they didn't mention him because they were trying to lend some credibility to this idea that flair wasn't even signed to wwe just turned up Mm. and was trying to show everyone or tell everyone that he was the best i do love that thought that he literally just turned up he's like all right guys just gonna (laughs) prove to everyone that i'm the best all right rick yeah whatever mate he's fucking bleeding over there isn't he (laughs) bloody heck of course, we, as we're recording this, Flair has just yesterday or the day before, I think it was the day before, uh, had his final ever match, supposedly. Mm. His 12th retirement match or whatever. I'd imagine it was ghastly. I, I imagine Gavin spent untold millions trying to watch this match. Uh, you imagine wrong. <laughs> uh, I'm aware it happened. I, I thought it was advertised as being a completely different match to the one that ended up being. I'm sure, I'm sure it was meant to be a, a six-man, one of my beloved six-man tags right. uh, mm. with FTR and someone but oh no i think i think it was always supposed to be rick flair and andrade against jay Lee and um jeff jarrett oh okay yeah uh, yeah i I just couldn't care any less about it and it was wishful thinking wasn't it gavin you were like just add ftr and everything will be fine (laughs) it'll be just like a Bret hart match yeah (laughs) i I don't know what what happens like below losing your dignity whatever that is (laughs) go go down about another 10 steps and you get to rick flair well he's still alive which is important Mm. So at least that came, that happened because that that was a very real concern for a lot of people. And a lot of the tweets I've seen out there has been saying, oh, thank God they got through that. That was uncomfortable. Yeah, just just fuck off, isn't it? That's basically (laughs) my attitude towards it. But going back to FTR, apparently they weren't able to contractually. I thought they were going to be on the show. See, I thought they were going to be on the show, but I yeah. I thought I saw somewhere it was like Flair and like Ricky Morton or someone like that, and uh, some weird six man lineup initially. But yeah, I might be Rick Flair and the Rock and Roll Express against uh, <laughs> like, I don't know Jeff Jarrett and an FTR. Bloody, no, Jeff Jarrett and uh, the Harris uh, Brothers. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, I was going to go for the Godwins, but the Harris oh, Brothers yeah. are probably Godwins. better. <laughs> so you say about the Rock and Roll Express. So Ricky Morton and what I assume is his son, Kerry, wrestled on the show, representing the Rock and Roll Express. So Robert Gibson was in their corner against Brian Pillman Jr., Brock Anderson with Arn Anderson in their corner, representing the Four Horsemen. Mm, I mean, right. that's a stretch, isn't it? But it was it was promoted by Jim Crockett. Yeah, it promotions. was. Jim Crockett Promotions, I should say, not, mm. not Jim Crockett Sr. I think it's probably long dead now, but yeah, by Jim Crockett Promotions. Anyhow, let's move on because we then get backstage. Randy Savage is on the phone to someone and he's talking about his honeymoon, but we have no idea <laughs> who he's talking to. We're not told and it's never revealed. It's not like it's ever made to be we're told who it is. 
isn't it the one eight hundred line? Isn't it? It's supposed to be a fan. Who, oh, a, I see. A lucky fan has yeah. rung the you know one dollar ninety nine a minute one eight hundred <laughs> line, and they're actually having a chat with Randy Savage about his wedding. Yeah. Right. I see. That makes yeah. sense. So they're basically selling the WWF hotline. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm not married, but I've been a couple of people's best man. Neither of the grooms. I don't think would have done this on their wedding day, been on a hotline. You know, quite a high pressure day. They weren't that relaxed. Weird. Didn't like it. Just really, I really don't know why. I really took against this. Can I just explore this a bit, man? So your problem with this is that it wasn't very realistic. Yeah. And it was stupid. It's you just, stupid. You've just seen the bushwhackers and the natural disasters, and that's your problem here. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a real story. Fair enough. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go any further. It's going to be a strange one. We then get another backstage bit with Ted DiBiase and Sensational Sherry they're interviewed by Sean Mooney Mooney lists the embarrassing and demeaning things that Virgil is made to do by DiBiase and DiBiase says he will show Virgil who the master is so still part of that some of that not so good in, in good taste stuff really seeping through in this one and then he, he gets out like a towel and says this is your crying towel almost as if English isn't his first language <laughs> That's just such a ridiculous insult. Then we get the DVOC Virgil match, which we've already spoken about, obviously. Then we get Gene Oakland in the parking lot with Mountie and some police officers. This is the beginning of the Mountie exploits of which he got my MVP for. Gene Oakland introduces some footage of Big Boss Man being tasered by the Mountie. Uh, Mountie then says that after he beats Boss Man, the local hick cops are going to put him in jail. He tells them they should drag Boss Man to jail and do it Canadian style rather than the apparently really humane way in which the NYPD Mm. conduct themselves. I wondered if the Canadian way involved a little bit of watering. That's what I wondered. I'm not casting aspersions on any Canadians, but that was the insinuation, I think, because he is waving that cattle prod around when he says it. But I mean, if that's what you want to do, then that's fine. But strange, but enjoyable. Not (laughs) unlike the Canadian way. It was an interesting bit of propaganda, though, wasn't it? The idea that Mm. the NYPD are nice and humane and would do things in in a thoroughly gentlemanly way. And those fucking violent Mounties. You know what they're like. Yeah. They're notoriously uh, inhumane. Like obviously the Mountie had multiple segments on this show. I thought this was this was fantastic. Like it, it's just the the great thing about the Mountie. He's probably my my number one guilty pleasure in wrestling. And and it, even talking about it today, I didn't know if you two would say, "Oh, the Mountie was what a twat." But like oh, no. you know, when when you talk about heels showing ass, there, there's no one who did it like the Mountie. Or you know, to a degree that was almost probably damaging to his career. But like the the line about the hick cops, it, it's just it's so perfect like his just the whole kind of setting himself up for a fool you know this whole promo is about basically showing how arrogant and and foolish he is and making it making you savor all that much more when when he's on the receiving end of that treatment from the cops and yeah just just classic mounty there's one rule on this podcast gavin that you need to learn which is that <laughs> ultimately any wrestler is willing to sing their own entrance music is a legend immediately and jack rougeau obviously has done it twice so he's an absolute fucking hero but it's not this music is it no it's not unfortunately not. Which good was, music, though. Uh, it's not as good I, I take your point but I, I was glad almost didn't get over it <laughs> this is one of my favorite wrestling entrance themes that, that might be controversial i think they also i didn't they recycle it for ludwig borger a couple of I was years gonna, later i was just about to say it sounds just like ludwig borger's theme tune yeah i think it's the same tune but yeah it, it's obviously not the, the mountie singing about being the mountie and get, always getting his man is you know that like obviously classic but i think this is a really good uh good song tune 
not all American boys there. No, yeah, that, that, yeah. I mean, what the Mounties' greatest hits? The Mounties <laughs> anthology CD would be like a, a number one bestseller. I would definitely buy it. <laughs> and I think we've just found why modern pop music isn't free, made for you. <laughs> then Chormoni interviews Big Boss Man. Boss Man tells Mountie he should be praying to God that he'll make it through the night. So about, apparently, even though Boss Man's the babyface, he's alluding to the fact that, that maybe the NYPD aren't as nice as Mountie had suggested previously. Boss Man is sweating. Is this boy sweating? Jesus. His shirt is drenched. I think it's because he's worried he might go to jail. Mm, I think it's just because he's quite a heavy set man and it's warm, I think. I think it'd be worse for him to go to jail because he was obviously a corrections officer and, and not, you know, not a very nice one from, from the, the story they've been telling two or three years earlier. So, mm. you know, there would have been a lot of, uh, you know, a, a, a bad screw going in, into the New York, New York slammer for the night would have probably fared worse than a Mountie, I who they probably so. just didn't care about. Yeah, I, I'd have thought so. And you have, you have to remember as well that I don't think it was out by this point but certainly any any distaste that the uh, american public would have for the mountie would be undone by the uh, mid 90s drama light drama series due south of course yeah oh yes uh, due south that's the way i'm going due south no i don't think so <laughs> well also that sounded like it was to the theme of hey jude due <laughs> south <laughs> Right. The next match is the Mountie versus the Boss Man. It is a nine and a half minute match. It's a jailhouse match where the loser has to go to jail. And it ends when uh, Boss Man hits an Alabama, an Alabama slam encounter to a pile Sorry, driver. <laughs> Gonna make me say it again, you prick. Right. It ends when Bossman hits an Alabama slam encounter to another pile driver attempt for the win. Mounty had previously pile driven Bossman, which was pretty impressive too, I thought. So yeah, what do you think of this old man? In the words of Gorilla Monsoon, as they lock up, this is gonna be a classic. <laughs> now, it wasn't, but what it was was it was the Mountie again with Shot Rougeau. He's just a really good, solid worker, isn't he? It's just really good. Who Who's a solid worker? Jacques Rougeau. Oh, what, the Scottish guy? <laughs> oh, we Jacques Rougeau. Yeah, Jacques, wasn't it? We agreed it was. <laughs> Jacques. 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 That's it. Jacques <laughs> is just he's just a really solid hand and the boss man's all right boss man is basically a punch let's be honest a cracking punch a cracking punch. and some incredible music i mean this if this came on and i was out anywhere no matter where i was they start playing the boss man's music dance floor done easy torn up complete it parody him out everything <laughs> Unbelievable. There's only two. There's only two wrestler entrance themes that I've heard in a club during my. I say club could have been a bar, but a, mm. a, a, a drinking establishment of any kind. The first one is obvious. In reflex would have been Hulk Hogan's theme, obviously. Yeah. Get get that. The other one though, I was walking down the waterfront in Bristol, and across the way they had Shawn Michaels music blaring oh. out. <laughs> I was like, that's a bit more niche than Hogan's theme. That's, yeah. that's a bit more niche. That's a surprise. But it was just blaring out across the across the waterfront on a Friday night in Bristol. That's beautiful. You know what? I wish I was there. I do. I do. I, I yeah. couldn't get there in time. By the time I'd have got there, it'd have finished. Oh, lovely. Anyway, back to the match. They're wearing matching trousers, apart from the fact that yeah. the Mounties yellow stripe doesn't go all the way down to the bottom. Bit disappointing, but never mind. There's a pile driver done by old Jacques, which the boss man sells really weird. He kind of rolls backwards after he's done to him and then shakes his head like a dog, like trying to like, like it's got a wet head just being like, ah, ah, ah. and uh, yeah, he does that. There is something absolutely extraordinary in this where 
the Mountie is given the teaser by Jimmy Hart. I, no, it's just in the corner. He grabs it, goes over, and the boss man punches him. He throws it in the air and it lands in the exact same spot. And I was like, this is the greatest athlete alive. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. I was just like, that's fucking absolutely amazing. And then like, they do the, what was it? The Alamamba Slam, was it you called it? <laughs> yep, the Alabama Bamba Lamba Lamba Slam. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and uh, then he calls down the fuzz and the Mountie is put in the paddy wagon. But I thought this was good fun. This was exactly what it needed to be. You you know what's happening. You know the hill is getting his pants pulled down and he's going to get his bottom spanked. And they got there in a very nice inoffensive way. And it was better than I was expecting because the boss man is it's the boss man. But yeah, enjoyed it. Gavin. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun. I'd, I don't think the match <laughs> that was, was a, good that was a I very different. That was a very different yeah. fun than the one yeah. previously. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> uh, it's, it's all about the way I say fun. Basically. Um, <laughs> It, it wasn't as good as I remembered the match being, but it was short and sweet and the crowd loved it and it and it all worked. Mm. And I think that, again, that's, you know, just sums up the whole the whole show or, or a lot of the show that it was it was crowd pleasing and the crowd was totally into it. And they, they did enough kind of big spots to uh, and, and told a, a story and, and the match was over quite quickly. I can never tell whether the boss man was good. Yeah. I, could never, I think he's good. I think he was better as a heel when he was a babyface. He, he just went on a bit too much about god and his mama and being an american and all that sort of like really like lazy <laughs> baby Americans. face stuff yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah I, and, he, and he's kind of like a big man but not that big like he, he was not that much bigger than jacques rougeau who who i don't think of as a big man at all i thought they screwed up the finish the the cattle prod thing i, I don't think that was meant to happen it was just even though he placed it beautifully exactly where mm. it had come from because he, he then ended up having to kick out of the boss man slam which i think was the boss man's finishing move which can't have been right so then they, obviously the uh the alabama slam was a uh an improvised spot which was fine i don't think it would have i don't I think 99% of people watching wouldn't have noticed. This was about the Mountie. And you know, the Mountie was like a poor man's Bret Hart. You know, sort of for, for years before this had been really good on the sort of lower end of the card on consistently on pay-per-view. And then the, uh, around the same time as Bret really got that chance to break out as a single and obviously never reached the same heights that Brett did, even though he was a better singer. But, you know, this is kind of the, I, I think for what he did, he he was just, you know, the Mountie was just fantastic at being that kind of weaselly, unlikable heel who just totally showed us. And, and you know, and even in, in the post-match, you know, after the pre-match interview, setting setting the fans up to get all the more satisfaction when he loses, you know, then the, the post-match is the same. It just adds to the layers of satisfaction that the fans are going to feel by protesting and, and having a massive tantrum as he's sort of dragged off to the to the paddy wagon by these cops that he's been bossing around 10 minutes earlier so it's exactly what it needed to be but i'd sort of remembered it being a better match but i don't think i don't really think that matters no i agree and i thought this was this was very i said at the beginning of the show when we talked about teddy biossi versus virgil that there there's a bit of a theme here and this is one is the same similar sort of feeling it's just a good feeling everyone's happy with it everyone's invested in it everyone wants the baby face to win the baby face does win it's a nice little story and on top of that you also get all the great stuff with the Mountie that comes after it. So it rewards you for having seen this match because then you get all the good stuff afterwards. Yeah, it's it's decent. It's a, it's a really decent match. I think on the boss man, I think he is a good wrestler for the time. Shall we say that? So I think his second mm. run in WWF was pretty poor, certainly in terms of obviously the character, but also just in the ring, he just wasn't as, he was just older basically. I think he's decent and I think this is a decent contest. It's not amazing or anything, but it does what it's supposed to do and it keeps that good feeling up. And I'd say, I think it was a, a similar feeling 
saying about the DiBiase Virgil match. I think even though it's a great match, Mr. Perfect and Bret Hart is a similar thing as well. There's just a really good feeling running through the show of baby faces getting significant victories, which um, again feels again feels a bit like you wouldn't normally have this amount of babyface victories. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but it feels a little bit like again feeding into that thing I was saying where it's the end of an era almost, and there's it's almost like a party. This is like we're going to give you one last blow off of this great period, and then and then we're done. We're going somewhere different. Last year, we reviewed SummerSlam 1990. And as part of SummerSlam 1990, there was this whole really weird middle section where they were just flim flamming around doing all kinds of weird bits and here it is again so first of all the mount is taken off to prison and in the midst of that he's complaining that they're hurting him which is quite funny then we get a fucking slew of stuff that's backstage interviews by gene oakland and sean mooney shall i just quickly run through it all and then afterwards you can pick out anything you want to say about any of it and you might want to say nothing which is fine so first of all gene oakland interviews ted dibiase dibiase says there's never been a bigger ripoff in the history of professional wrestling dibiase tells Virgil that he stole the belt Sean Mooney then interviews Bret Hart backstage he says he waited for a long time to show Mr. Perfect that there's no such thing as perfect Jimmy Hart and the Natural Disasters are backstage with Gene Oakland Jimmy Hart is frantic over the Mountie the Natural Disasters are angry that LOD stuck their noses in their business then we got Sean Mooney with Big Boss Man Bossman says that Mounty is just a criminal, a bad cop, and he is the law and order. Backstage, Gene Oakland tries to talk to Randy Savage again, but Savage is still on the phone, presumably on the WF hotline, which I, at this time, have still said to someone I don't know who it is. Oakland then says he'll go and speak to Elizabeth instead, but Savage then gets very angry and stops him, won't let him go and do that. Then there is a break of some kind, like some kind of interval, strange thing. So we get the SummerSlam logo again. Then we get some views from the commentary team as they talk about Sid, who will be the referee in the main event we go to some footage of the police truck arriving at the police station the police drag mounty into the station all the while mounty is telling them he's the mounty and he shouldn't be treated like this we get backstage jimmy hart and nasty boys interviewed by sean mooney hart is still aghast at what's happening to the mounty the nasty boys complain about jack tunney setting up a match with no rules no count out no disqualification for their tag team titles which is still to come back at the police station mounty is getting his mugshot taken uh gene oakland then is backstage with the legion of doom animal says they are ready to take the titles and also tells the natural disasters that they're not afraid of them hawk says that the nasty boys are on their mind first and the tag team titles will be theirs back at the prison the police take mounty's fingerprints mounty is great during these segments and in particular here he tries to give them he says you want a finger and then gives them the middle finger which is lovely and probably unscripted i cannot imagine mcmahon signing off on this one sean mooney interviews sergeant slaughter colonel mustafa and general adnan slaughter says that they may have a surprise later on in the match made in hell they don't spoilers uh <laughs> gene oakland then interviews sid justice and asks him where he stands sid says he's a man who stands alone oakland then shows him footage of slaughter and company approaching sid backstage sid says he agreed nothing with them and tonight justice will be served so that's the whole middle section of the show and it goes on for a long time and it is just like it did the year before i'm close to falling asleep especially trying to take all the notes of that long so for the listeners at home there was a little bit when uh, our dear host got about halfway through and he's looking down at his nose he just looked up I'm pretty sure he was checking to make sure that me and Gavin were still alive (laughs) (laughs) or that we hadn't just left because this bit and you've done an outstanding job there Tinky well done sir this bit is repulsive Because it takes all the energy out of the show. Without the bounty bits, this is even worse. 
this is so strange because I assumed, and in my head, the wedding isn't the final bit of the show. In my head, it happens about halfway through. So I assumed they were getting stuff ready for the wedding. I'm assuming they had Liz getting dressed. Oh, Savage was hanging up on the phone. I thought, well, maybe he can't get off the phone. That's why he's taking so long. They're doing all these interviews. But yeah, what a load of bollocks. There must have been a reason, but I don't know what the reason mm. was. I think they mentioned something about an intermission, but mm. I, I don't really understand how that worked and felt like they were killing time while something mm. got set up, but then some nothing was being set up. <laughs> but the Mountie segments are funny and keep it going. So I, I think they were funnier to my 11-year-old self than they were to, to me watching it now, but I still, I, they were st- there's still enough of it to enjoy. The only other thing I noticed in this interminably boring segment was Sid Justice. It's such a fun fucking weirdo like you know like this this is the night of Sid Justice being particularly weird you know Gene Oakland asks him a question and he's meant to be like I I know that there's meant to be a bit of intrigue as to whether he's a good guy or a bad guy but the way he answers quite a uh, quite a harmless question it's like he's really angry and he's got his gritted teeth and he's doing like the proper angry heel Sid Justice thing but it doesn't work at all because it just makes him seem like a really unreasonable person that couldn't possibly be a babyface. I I accept that but at the same time I fucking love Sid I absolutely bloody love him. We've talked about it before in the podcast. Just his, his commitment to the role. And it probably is just him. So that's why he's got the commitment to it. But fucking hell, he really makes you believe that he's an absolute nutter. And I love it. I just think it's great. That but I don't it's think just he's such a shame. nutter, is he here? I think well, maybe not. Thing. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. And I accept that. But I think maybe this is what planted the seed. It's like, this guy's a nutter. Let's just, let's just go with it. Let's just make him a nutter. It's brilliant. Yeah, fair enough. So we get the tag team title match up next. It is uh, a match that goes for seven and a half minutes it's no disqualification no count out and LOD hit the doomsday device on Jerry Sags and get the pin to end it Gavin we talked earlier about the um, no DQ match thing this is a no DQ match and yet they're tagging in and out and and that that sort of irritated me it's only a, only a small detail but I kind of found that a bit like the thing is illogical. it's not a small detail and this is why it annoys me so much I've started something because it's <laughs> not a small detail it's enormous it's the it's the rule is that there's no rules why are they tagging sorry Gavin no I I, I agree I logic to it but it's absolutely everything it should be. I, I like the fact that this match didn't go on too long. You know, it's a, it's a brawl between two teams of street fighters and and that shouldn't go on for 25 minutes. It's yeah, just a good, quick fight. Obviously, it has the right winner. I thought the, the, it was quite noticeable that one of the Nasty Boys spent ages spraying something in Hawk's eye. But even though he did it for about 10 seconds, the commentators seemed to completely miss it. And it was quite a crucial part of the story of the match that, you know, like every LOD match, Hawk ends up selling and then gets a hot tag to animal but like the reason that hawk was being dominated by by the nasty boys was because they'd sprayed him in the eye for ages and the commentators just seemed totally distracted by something else it was short and sweet and it was everything it needed to be really and and everything that a no dq match should be except for the lack of rules being disregarded so there's everything a no disqualification match should be except for a no disqualification match yeah yeah that's right <laughs> i'm glad you said about the spray because they were too busy talking about hogan the commentators and of i don't know people. what yeah i don't know what they're spraying in his eyes but i don't think i'd want stuff sprayed in my eyes for that long to be honest It'd be annoying i might hurt but yeah this is a uh, four big bollocks in it bashing together for seven minutes and 45 seconds which is normally a good night of viewing for me <laughs> And you know what? It it was all right. 
it's absolutely fine. It was the technical masterpiece I expected. The crowd absolutely ate it up. Like they had everything anyway to this point. But LOD, like to your point earlier, Gavin, they are fucking so popular. Get such a great reaction. The hair on display in this match is disgusting, but it doesn't take anything away. Old knobs and sags are fucking terrible. Fair fucks to those cunts. Because they really made a cracking career out of them, so out for themselves, didn't they? And yeah, this is absolutely fine. Although the break had annoyed me, mm. and then the tagging had annoyed me, so I did have to take a little break after this, just to be ironically, uh, I had to take a little <laughs> break just to simmer down and be like, right, I need to get ready for the wedding because the wedding's going to be next. During your break, did you constantly have Sean Mooney and Gene Oakland going back and forth interviewing people? <laughs> <laughs> if only, if only they were around me house. Come on, Sean, get the bloody beers in your cheap gun. <laughs> so we all know what uh, LOD stands for, right? Yeah, Roddy Piper told us twice, didn't he? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Look out, dummies. This was... Yeah, it wasn't funny the first time either, was it? <laughs> funny that, funny that time though, wasn't it? Funny that time. <laughs> and then Sags hits Hawk with a washing up bowl, and Bobby Heenan says, "I bet that's the first time he's taken a bath in a while." <laughs> Excellent stuff. Yeah, it was it was right. Again, similar feeling about this match as I had with the Virgil Diviossi and Mounty Bossman. Fun ended with a happy babyface victory. The fans were really, really into that victory. Very, very happy that it happened. So it was again, it just had this really good feel to it. And I just thought, how long can they sustain this happiness? Because surely you can you can only take so much fun on the same show, Gabby. Uh, yeah, they certainly managed to not sustain the happiness, I think from this point onwards. <laughs> so we go back to the Mountie briefly in the slammer as he's dragged to his cell. He convinces them to let him walk, but then makes to run away and demands his phone call. <laughs> that that might be my favourite bit, actually, the running away. <laughs> there is then a very brief, very basic advert for the Survivor Series before IRS oh, is... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Be careful, sure. The saxophone <laughs> on this Survivor Series advert is sensational. It's just the Survivor Series music. That's all it is. Don't, but don't make it any less sensational, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, IRS is introduced and he tells the crowd that when he comes to pay when it comes to paying taxes, the people have become finger pointers and crybabies. As uh, IRS's very simple gimmick gets its early, an early airing here. I don't think we'd seen IRS on pay per view prior to this match. Some people might be glad of that when. They consider this seven match, seven minute match, which is next between him and Greg the Hammer Valentine in what must be one of Greg Valentine's very final appearances on WWF pay-per-view. It ends when IRS rolls Valentine up in a small package for the victory. Old man, an undoubted classic. Well, my first thought is IRS's mullet is putting in a good old shift here. Great heat on the promo. Like, really good heat on the promo. And I was like, why is this happening? Like, why? Now, didn't want it. And then there's an abdominal stretch. Now, yeah. Gavin, you might not know this. I love an abdominal stretch. And then IRS, he reaches for that rope. He yes. cinches it in. It's that classic referee checks. No, no, I didn't do it. Of course I didn't. The one thing, the referee doesn't kick his arm away. No. That's the one disappointment. I think it's Joey Morella. God rest his soul. Doesn't do it. The crowd absolutely love Greg and his hammer Greg, Greg and his hammerhead I wrote that the motions were gone through in this match and I think that's kind because this is a this is a big old drop off because it's just crap but it's probably not as big a drop off compared to some of the other stuff on the show but because there's no investment at all now you've got the tag title match you've got the big boss man in the mountain there's something on it you've got Virgil Ted DiBiase there's somewhat on it the disasters and bush weapons there's Andre is there and they're like sticking up for him Brett and Perfect is for the title you've got a lovely little six man that doesn't need any explanation because it's the opener this is just like they literally just went well it's either we put this in there 
while we have another break. <laughs> and we can't have another break, so let's send these cunts out. Gavin, anything else to add to that? <laughs> I think this was the match that should have been uh, rematched at King of the Ring 93. No, I think that was a great <laughs> missed opportunity on behalf of the WWF. This was I, I said earlier on the Natural Disasters and the Bushwhackers was the worst match. This probably was worse, if, mm-hmm. if only because it went on a bit longer, I think. Um, and here's my lookalike, IRS and CM Punk. Ooh, love it. Yes. I, I've spotted what? it recently and I, I was watching him very intently during this match, thinking, you know, am I imagining it or is there definitely a resemblance there? I, I, thought, I, I think I, it's there. I thought you were staring at him intently to see if he was actually CM Punk. Yeah, <laughs> that was his sort of original gimmick. Yeah. yeah. So my thoughts on this match are that this is a classic thing they used to do on pay-per-view where they would have a kind of sleep uh, a, a match to bring the crowd down before the main event and often it seems like it would involve somebody who had some name value but absolutely no future whatsoever putting over a new heel um, and that's basically what this match was and it was shite oh man obviously didn't like the match either and I've never heard him talk so negatively about Mike Rotunda ever no, before no. I mean he's still he's still the goat because of the abdominal stretch <laughs> I didn't think Valentine was over. I thought that hurt it, but I might have uh, I might have imagined. I, I didn't I didn't think he was either. I, I mean, no. staring so intently at IRS, trying to work out if that was CM Punk. Yeah. I well, I was trying to figure this. out if Greg Valentine was Chris Jericho, in fairness. So, you know. <laughs> the best thing about this match might have been, I think it was during this match, that Heenan said Sid Vicious. That was mm. a, a rare slip of the name on WWE TV. Yes. So then uh, we get a little bit of the commentators. Heenan pretends to get the match made in hell and the match made in heaven mixed up just for a comedy value then we get gene oakland interview hulk hogan and the ultimate warrior prior to the main event hogan says that if they don't defeat slaughter and company tonight then the course of wrestling history could be changed again just like it was when he first won the world title in 1984 and they, re- they he seemed to be bringing this up because the man who he beat in 1984 is in the match which is weird because he's not the man he beat in 1984 except he is but he's not if you see what i mean ultimate warrior also says some things couldn't be fucked to take his note in those down on what he said and then they together say what you're going to do when the Hulkster mm-hmm. and the ultimate warrior run wild on you and then go to make out and the camera cuts just before their lips touch so there's one point where Hogan says we're going to walk out as we walk in the same so I'm like <laughs> what's that mean Utter tripe, I sum this up as. So it is main event time, which we've already discussed. So we will go straight to what's after that, which is the Mountie back in the slammer one more time. He says he wants his own cell. And then Mountie is confronted by two other prisoners. One of them appears to be coming on to him, as uh, mm. that's the last we see of old Mountster for this particular night. There's some footage then of Savage proposing to Elizabeth. Savage really, I like this because Savage really drew it out and mm. kind of got the maximum, absolutely wrung it full of emotion from this this moment. It was, I think in lesser hands, it could have been quite dull, but I found mm. the way he did it was just like, he just wanted the most reaction he could get from the whole thing, which is really cool. And Elizabeth! Then, and then we get the absolutely beautiful music tribute to the love, <laughs> modern love story that is Randy Savage and Elizabeth with a terrible fucking song playing over the top. This is all obviously building to the wedding. I'm, I'm sure you loved this video just as much as I did. Bloody awful. I, I, this was the only the only bit of the show that I fast forwarded through. They started the music video and I thought this I, I can't I can't have this. <laughs> I, I, this, this, I just have to get past and then I actually went past the entrances as well because they had like 
kids coming down, like the page boy and the bridesmaid or something. I, I think I liked this as an 11 year old, just as I liked the joke about the gay man in the prison as an 11 year old. But yeah, it, it, fucking hell, this was uh, people paid to watch this. The funny thing was the only amusing thing about the wedding. I mean, I'm not amusing. I don't want to take pleasure in other people's pain, but you know, they, they'd be married for years in real life and then they get married on pay-per-view and then like a year later or whatever it is, they get divorced. So that was uh, that was the only notable thing really about the match made in heaven for me. So the wedding ceremony takes place in the ring, but the ropes have been removed. Bobby Heenan is cynical and so Piper tells him in no uncertain terms to shut up. Not many people have left the arena, which is something I know. So there's a big old wide shot of the wedding going on and they're all still there, which made me wonder whether or not maybe this did take place during the interval on television. <laughs> because I would imagine this is Madison Square Garden as well. Let's remember, this is not kind of just somewhere in the middle of America that isn't a traditional WWF or a wrestling crowd. This is WWF's core fan base and their, mm. that arena is still completely full. We have a normal guy who is Savage's best man. Oh, you, you're hoping for a wrestler, surely. Come on, oh, you're hoping for a wrestler. You have a little girl as bridesmaid, uh, a little boy as a ring bearer, and then another normal woman as maid of honour. Again, you're hoping for someone we know, although in fairness, there aren't that many women in the WWF universe, one of which is Sherry. So probably the only one, in fact, is Sherry. So that's not going to really work. But you thought this is a sort of prime territory for Fabulous Moolah to turn up, really, wouldn't you? As a, as, a, as a maid of honour. Yeah, I know. But this was a time when people weren't thinking about Moolah like that. And then the fans cheer as they are proclaimed husband and wife. Then confetti, balloons and streamers fall from the rafters and everything goes off without a hitch, without a swerve, without a turn. Very, very strange for wrestling, but but I guess this was one of the original wrestling weddings. So uh, there we go. I fast forwarded through the best man bit. So I think I must have just missed that introduction. That, that's unforgivable that the best man was just a bloke. Yeah, yeah. It totally. could have been Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Yeah, give it Genius anyone. wouldn't really have worked, but would have been a nice touch. But, but yeah, that, that's that's shocking. Could have been someone turning heel. That could have been Jake's heel turn. So many, so many different options. And you go with some bloke. Yeah unforgivable to touch on your point gavin i found this all very awkward because you know obviously what's going on and i actually watched the a and e documentary that they have in the u.s i watched that on savage the other week and uh they fucking hated each other at this point <laughs> she pretty much left him and i was just like oh this is horrible isn't it and uh i just don't care as well and i know a cynical 38 year old man is in their target audience but fuck off with this shit the best thing about this was Piper putting over his wife. He puts over his wife about five or six times. I was like, that's lovely. That's really lovely. I think what you've said, Tinky, is correct. I think you're right. I think this happened during the break. And for some reason, they mixed the order up. I don't know why, because it's the only... I'd have left. If I was there, I'd have been like, Dad, I want to go home now. He's gone, I'm not your dad. I said, oh, OK, well, can we leave? <laughs> no, no. That does make a lot of sense that that was why mm. they were killing time with all those in- interviews. Yeah. Especially when you see how short the whole wedding thing was. Actually, mm. it probably was about the same amount of time. Yeah. Well, in my mind, this wedding bit, it was about half hour. Right? As a seven-year-old kid, this felt an interminable amount of time I probably don't have any snacks probably close to death after the seven minutes or whatever it lasts 
I tell you what is notable is that there's nothing notable about it. Is that it doesn't do anything. Now, interestingly enough, the VHS and subsequently the Tag Classic DVD version of this does have the reception afterwards, mm-hmm. which is where Jake Roberts and Undertaker make their presence felt. But this is not on this version, which is probably the which is obviously the the version that was put out on pay per view. And what I learned, I read a little bit about this afterwards, is that they showed those reception clips on television over the course of the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. What I was thinking though is. That Going back to the Ultimate Warrior situation, this is what I was talking about earlier on about a a kind of different history or a potential future that didn't end up happening, which was that I think they didn't know they were going to do the Savage Jake Roberts stuff on the on the day. And I think obviously Roberts had already turned heel on the Warrior prior to this pay-per-view. So I think they would still they were lining up the Jake Roberts Warrior feud. And I don't think they had any intention of making Savage a wrestler or anything to happen until after they sacked the Warrior and then go, right, we need something for Jake Roberts to do now. Savage, you're the obvious candidate. Let's let's draft you back in. We also need a big you know, baby face star to come back because we haven't got Warrior anymore. So he just filled a gap, you know, which would have been there the Ultimate Warrior space. And so that's why it completely goes off without a hitch. And it just felt so odd that, you know, even if they did do it during the interval and then played the recording at the end of the show for the pay-per-view audience, to end the pay-per-view in this way with this completely, as I said, no swerve, no turn, no twist, nothing to it, completely just a, a wedding, ultimately. Mm. It said a number of things. What it said to me, first of all, was that it's a different time when people didn't want the swerve. The, the thing is here is that these are two babyface characters, beloved babyface characters, genuinely beloved as well, not kind of just babyface characters. People genuinely love them. And they would have been hugely turned off and upset had there been some turn, some swerve, some twist to this. Whereas a modern audience, regardless of whether they were babyfaces, in fact, if they were babyfaces, it would make no difference, would have been itching for the twist, for the turn, for the swerve. They would have been desperate for it, which is, again, another example of where your audience isn't really watching it in kind of the same way, because this audience cared about them enough to not want them to go through any pain. And so WF had to kind of deliver this kind of really strange kind of nothingy segment where they just got married but to not have any other wrestlers involved even as the best man is a bit ridiculous you'd have thought they'd have just gone really quickly through the wedding and they maybe had a speech by a couple of people including the best man which mm. have made it just a little bit more notable but as i said just the lack of notice what is most notable about this really strange so i did think right now i don't know if you're married gavin i'm not but if i were ever to get married i'd want entrance music when i turn up because that's what savage gets here <laughs> i was like they should bring that in like obviously the bride Gets the wedding march. Where's the groom's thing? Well, you know, at my wedding, I did get Bret Hart's theme when I walked into the reception. So You did, indeed, yeah. Which I was completely... I didn't know anything about. Really? My wife, my wife had arranged it completely behind my back. And That's... so when I when I came in, I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. What a woman. Well, well, what exactly. a woman. Did you take off your glasses and give them to a kid? <laughs> Unfortunately <laughs> not. There were no kids at my wedding. No, they were banned. Don't want them. Don't want them around. I think you're totally right there about the Undertaker and Jake Roberts thing. I think they tacked it on afterwards because mm-hmm. of Warrior leaving. It's that is a really fascinating period in that that sort of the six to eight months following this to WrestleMania eight because so many things happened that weren't meant to happen. And you know, even like Undertaker's babyface turn wasn't supposed to happen when it did. Like when would that have happened? There there are so many different things that wouldn't have worked out the way they did. And 
it, actually, they did quite well to get through it and get to WrestleMania with, with making some modicum of sense, especially all the scandals going on at the same time. Yeah. But they, they didn't kind of completely lose, take their eye off the ball as far as storylines, but they, they were forced into so many, probably more changes in, in this sort of six to eight month period than they than they were in any other, certainly in that kind of, I suppose, pre-Monday Night War mm-hmm. era. About the lack of something happening at the wedding is, it is, that is the WWF booking pattern of that time. You know, like even, even in the handicap match in the main event, you kind of, you know i'm watching it now and i'm thinking well you've got all these p- p- possibilities of sid or jake or undertaker or flair like all these people that could get involved but actually at the time that wasn't what the crowd expected and that wasn't what wwf gave them and i think you know i think having a having a best man who then turned heel on savage during during the ceremony would have been a monday night war booking pattern <laughs> an attitude era thing but that was never going to happen in the wwf in 1991 it was a comfort in knowing the end result before you watched it the same way as there is a comfort if you are i don't know a fan of disney films you know there's going to be the disney happy ending that's what wwe sold basically was the comfort in the victory you you watched you bought the shows to see hogan win not to see him lose (laughs) you didn't Mm. want him to lose and that was the point that's why it sold because they wanted them to win okay that brings us all the way up to date we've covered everything on the show so it is time to give our overall thoughts our rating out of 10 and uh, i think we've all given our mvp and match the night so that's what we need to do so why don't we start with you old man what was your your score out of 10 and uh, your overall thoughts I didn't give my MVP did you not sorry no because I'm really struggling because there's no standout I'm going to give it to Lord Alfred Hayes <laughs> fair enough <laughs> yeah just for just being crap it's better than uh, Candice LeRae's kendo stick which was in someone's MVP recently <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, we got some good MVPs. When you ran through that list of MVPs, <laughs> oh, I am laughed like that in years. You know what, right? I really struggled with this because what it is, and you lads have touched on it without me even realising, nothing happens. It's safe. It's a lovely, safe pair of hands. This is like a good goalkeeper. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it didn't make me particularly excited when I was watching it. And without the Bret Hart Mr. Perfect match, I think this is pretty crap. But it does have that match. But it also has the last two matches and the wedding are not good at all. And I'm like, oh, you've kind of fucked it. Basically, I can't believe I'm saying this. It drops off a cliff after the Legion of Doom and the Nasty Boys have a match. (laughs) I mean, fucking hell. You kind of almost turned me with the Virgil Ted DiBiase match because I think I just didn't enjoy it but I can take all of your points on one but up until that point I enjoyed pretty much everything on the card it's gonna get a five yeah I think it's a five because it is such a poor last half hour or so I think it really does yeah it, it let me down never mind old man maybe you'll recover yeah. in time for next week well I'm having to take two weeks off now oh yeah that's true yeah because I'm so devastated (laughs) Gavin I think you're right in that it is somewhat the end of an era and I think Mm. in some ways they did the WWF pay-per-view formula to perfection Mm. in a sense you know as far as following that formula of crowd pleasing short spot filled matches what's what's the when I say spot I don't mean spot as in like a you know a a leaping corkscrew plancher but you know just signature moments giving the crowd even when the bait when the heels lost apart from greg valentine no one really cared about anyway but you know even when the bushwhackers lost you had a moment afterwards where the the baby faces you know ended up sort of winning
winning the day. And, and also what it didn't, what it lacked that you had in many of these early years, pay-per-views from WWF was just those filler matches that had no reason to be on the card. Like everything apart from IRS against Greg Valentine had a had a reason and had mm. sort of a, you know, a, a crowd investment in it. Match quality is, is really hard to define because it was basic, but the crowd was into it. And uh, up to the LOD match, none of them were just complete duds. I'm going to give it a, maybe I'm just nostalgic, but I'm going to give it a seven because uh, I, I just think it was that it, it really, it just encapsulated the WWF pay-per-view formula better than probably anything else to that point. Good stuff. I'm going to give it a five as well. It took me a little while to decide that after watching it because it is a difficult one to judge. But then I thought, look, as I said, I always say I start with the main event, take the rating for that and then go from there. Effectively, the main event is your, it's your main attraction. That's what you should be rating on this. Mo- mostly anyway. And for me, it wasn't a it wasn't a very good match, but there was some good stuff underneath. And as you said, up to the end of the LOD versus Nasty Boys match, we were on for a pretty decent show overall. It's a shame that the next match no one cared about the following match was the main event and was terrible and then we had the 10 minute wedding angle thing that though delivering on the happy ending that no doubt most fans of the time wanted it to deliver on wasn't particularly fun to watch and of course we also had to put up with that a never-ending break that happened in the middle which probably was the break to do the wedding in front of the crowd for so yeah five for me not bad pretty decent up until about halfway yeah as i said though there were really good so the bret hart mr perfect match was really great the six-man tag match i really liked i really enjoyed all three of the sort of good feeling matches the legion of doom winning the tag titles the, the boss man beating the mountie and virgil beating ted dibiase but it's just the end it just really let it down the whole kind of four, last 45 minutes was just a it was just just a real low point to to end the show on okay that brings the episode to an end and i'm going to very quickly uh thank you old man for joining me today thank you very much everyone now we've got some time constraints today so i'm not going to waffle on so just rate review and remember our friend and yours ken patera and don't forget to get interviewed by sean morley And Gavin, thank you for your contributions as well today. And thank you for joining us for the first time. Thank you very much. Cheers, Gavin. Cheers. Nice to meet you. Fuck off, Tinky. (laughs) (laughs) This has been the Random Wrestling Review. We'll be back again next week. But until then, take care.